Native Sons is about black Americans who returned to Africa long before Alex Haley and Roots to found the first republic on that continent. Liberia, a nation on the east coast of Africa whose roots are in the United States. Most of the news out of Africa, independent Africa, and southern Africa has been a catalog of brutality, tribal war, and insane slaughter. Well, Liberia is free of those things, but it suffers from a different, less newsworthy kind of African sickness. The sadness and seediness, petty corruption, and grand larceny, black and white mischief. You'll find it all in Liberia. Liberia calls itself a republic. In fact, it is an oligarchy, ruled by a few, by the few that belong to 300 families descended from the original settlers. Families who are at the top and see to it that they stay at the top. 150 years ago, American philanthropists and freed slaves had the idea of a state in Africa. It was in no sense a return to a promised land, but an escape from a land that held no promise. The Liberian Declaration of Independence is modeled on the American one, except for some key language. It states that Liberians were originally Americans, who were forced by conditions to seek asylum abroad from their deep degradation. And so they landed on this beach as colonists, American colonists, who imposed themselves on what they called the uncivilized natives. But to those pilgrim fathers, America was the old country. They named places Maryland and New Georgia and Virginia. And they built houses that have that same southern look a cross between the old slave quarters and the old plantation house. The absence of a colonial legacy has its disadvantages. No tradition of civil service, terrible communications, primitive education and medical care. In Liberia, they started from scratch with little outside help. Not even the conscience money its neighbors received from former colonial masters. All it got from America was a memory. The grand old flag with 49 fewer stars. The currency is the U.S. dollar. The mailboxes are American. The cop on the beat wears a New York City Police Department uniform. The capital is Monrovia, named after U.S. President James Monroe. Liberia is stable. Stable without the paratroop enforcers you find in so much of black and white Africa. This is the Liberia most familiar to Americans the Liberia of President William Tubman. He ran things as an elected dictator for 27 years. It had the look of 19th century America in blackface. Tubman insisted on things like silk hats and frock coats. Everyone, diplomats included, sweated it out in the West African heat. But the clothes clearly defined the classes. The only thing the colonialists had in common with the natives was the color of their skin. It was ruled by elite, by the top 300 families who could trace their lineage back to the exodus. Well, Tubman's gone. He died eight years ago and was replaced by this man, William Tolbert. The president still sets the rules for dress. The leisure suit has replaced the frock coat. There have been other changes, but mainly in look and style. It is still ruled by elite, by the top people who regard the nation as a private inheritance. The president disputes this, says Liberia is a democracy. It does have an American-style constitution, a Senate and a House of Representatives, and free elections. 
But there's only one party, and that's been the case for all of this century. Liberians resent things like the report that Ambassador Andrew Young described them as a bunch of Uncle Toms. And they're angry with President Carter, who passed through the country on his trip to Africa. No way to be treated by the mother country. You see, the president passed through here and went to Nigeria and stayed there for days and came here for a few hours. That's your daughter. You pass by your daughter and go to some other else place and stay two, three days. And you don't even lay your head on one pillar in her house. Tell her. We don't like it. And she will change her ways. Thank you. This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. Episode 103. I am your co host, Dimitri. And today we are going to be diving into Demon Forces Chapter 2. Now, when I first started this, I thought that I would probably blaze through the history of the 1970s in Liberia pretty quickly to get on to the heart of the story. But the more research I did, I realized that it would do a great disservice to you, dear listener, if we glossed over some of the events in Liberian politics in the 1970s. Because as we will see today, they many of the direct precursors to the horrors that would afflict Liberia in the 80s and the 90s had their roots in this very interesting decade. So today we're going to be focusing on the period of rule of the last Liberian president before things got crazy, William Tolbert. Now where we left off last time, the longtime president of Liberia, William V.S. Tubman, had just died in a London hospital. And his vice president, William Tolbert, uh, assumed the presidency. We had talked a lot uh, near the end of the first chapter about William Tubman's very strong relationship with the U.S. government and his very staunch pro-U.S. anti-communist Cold War position. And as a result of that, 
Liberia became this American outpost in West Africa during the Cold War, it, it, especially in the period of um, quote-unquote decolonialization or uh, maybe more accurately neocolonialism kind of took over in the 1960s and a lot of revolutionary governments took over in places like Ghana and Guinea and during this time, Liberia was a staunch U.S. ally. And not just that, as we covered, it became a kind of nerve center for the U.S. government to operate in Africa during the Cold War. So Tubman established agreements with the U.S. government uh, to basically uh, house the largest CIA station in on the African continent, Inside of the U.S. Embassy, I believe they had about 250 Americans working there full-time. On top of that, they had the radio transmitter for Voice of America, which covered all of Africa and even extended into Southwest Asia and parts of South America. So basically, it was a hub for U.S. propaganda and soft power influence. And a little bit later in the 1960s, um, they also uh, reached a deal with the Americans to build the Omega uh, monitoring system, basically this Omega radar system, which was top secret and basically monitored international uh, shipping and also uh, enabled U.S. nuclear submarines to communicate uh, with one another. So this became a place, Liberia, of extreme strategic interest to the U.S. And at the same time, it also served a strategic economic interest because Firestone by this time had built the largest rubber plantation in the world, which as we covered, um, broke the British monopoly on rubber in the 1920s and uh, basically was the largest economic force in Liberia. And under Tubman, you had something called the open door policy, which is kind of a neoliberal free trade program that uh, kind of provided maximum benefits to international investors and international corporations and kind of minimal benefit to the actual Liberian people. And so the U.S. didn't have all that much to worry about. Also, William Tubman was a very staunch voice in the OAU, the Organization of African Unity, uh, and led what was called the Monrovia Group, which was kind of like the right-wing faction of the OAU, in contrast with the revolutionary socialism of Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Touré. So Tubman was diametrically opposed to these guys politically up to the day that he died in 1971. Now, I'll just say real briefly, because uh, I think if I've learned one thing in researching this series, it's that you should never assume that when a senior Liberian politician dies, that uh, it was natural and not suspicious. And I had actually thought all these years that Tubman just died during a hospital operation in London. What's so sus about that? But actually, when I was going through watching some testimonies from the Liberian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, a woman testified there that actually, when Tubman was in his hospital bed, a nurse slipped in the room and maybe disconnected an IV or something like that, like a blood bag, and 
William Tubbin actually bled out in the hospital, and that's how he died. He was effectively assassinated, though she did not say by who. And honestly, I can't say who either, because I would usually default to probably the Americans had something to do with it. But in this case, he was the most pro-U.S. Liberian president in that country's history. So I don't see the immediate benefit to assassinating somebody who is such a staunch ally. Um, maybe you can never rule out the British, but uh, there's not much information about that. But as a result of his death, his vice president, William Tolbert, uh, succeeds and becomes president. And he pretty quickly uh, moves Liberia in a somewhat different direction than Tubman had. And I should just say up front, just like with the first episode, we're kind of doing a little historical housekeeping today because I think if you read a lot of articles about William Tolbert's presidency in Liberia, and I have over the years, um, the general impression I always got was they always emphasize his corruption because of course William Tolbert, like Tubman and virtually every other uh, Liberian president, was part of the Americo-Liberian elite. And his eventual downfall in 1980 is usually attributed by Westerners and Americans to be a result of his failure to curb his own nepotism and corruption. And they also often throw in the idea that he tried a lot of economic reforms that just didn't work out and caused a lot of economic instability in particular, and we're gonna dive deep into this today, the manipulation of the price of rice, the critical staple commodity of Liberia, and he is often blamed for uh, raising the price of rice, which led to some very significant and bloody riots in 1979 and sort of set the stage for his overthrow. But I think we have to hold on a second because when going through uh, some of the more recent sources uh, that I found for this series, uh, it does jump out that this is a president of a U.S. ally that was moving in a more left direction in terms of his country's political allegiances and his economic development. And I don't think we can just write off automatically uh, that a president who does a thing like that and obsess upsets the U.S. government might find themselves caught up in a dangerous situation that is not, in fact, of their own doing. So today, I think as we start talking about Tolbert, um, you know, normally I wouldn't do this, but because the history of Liberia is so heavily intertwined with the United States, I think a historical parallel may be appropriate. So I think that the way I look at William Tolbert now is, and really his whole family, uh, many of whom served in the government with him, I look at them as very almost like uh, the Liberian Kennedys of their time. And I think in terms of his economic policy, you could even draw some comparisons to uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And I say that because, I mean, there are a lot of similarities here. I think that Tolbert is like the Kennedys. He came from 
a pretty elite family that was in with the ruling class, the Americo-Liberian elite. Um, you know, he was a full, full-blooded descendant of African-American settlers. Uh, his, uh, I, the original uh, ancestor in his family, I believe, came from South Carolina, and like the Kennedys, they were part of the elite. But then when they actually got into the White House, so to speak, they pursued a number of policies that were perceived as antagonistic to the other member, to many of the other members of the Americo-Liberian ruling class, kind of the Tubman wing, the more conservative wing, but more importantly to the U.S. government. And like the Kennedys, um, this is a guy, William Tolbert, who had a high-powered, aggressive brother, Stephen Tolbert, who was his finance minister, who decided to play hardball with U.S. corporations and the U.S. government. And as we will see, both brothers paid an extremely heavy cost for their what was seen as their intransigence. So let's get into it. Demon Forces, Chapter 2, William Tolbert and the Unspeakable. So William Tolbert assumed office in 1971. And I'm going to read a few select passages still from Neil Hahn's excellent book, Two Centuries of U.S. Military Operations in Liberia, Challenges of Resistance and Compliance, because I think he, again, provides the proper framing for the trajectory of the Tolbert administration and sets the stage for the rather brutal events that were to follow. So as soon as Tolbert gets into office... Um, in fact, as Tubman was in the process of dying, Hahn writes that McKinley A. DeShield, the Grand Master of the Masonic Order in Liberia and Secretary General of the True Whig Party, had received a warning that the U.S. Embassy in Monrovia suspected that Tolbert was influenced by the ideas of Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Touré. There were rumors about plans for a military coup led by Henry Caboy Johnson, the chief of staff of the armed forces of Liberia, to prevent Tolbert from becoming president. Critical decision makers of the government gathered for a crisis meeting at the Liberian Department of State. However, they were not allowed to leave the department until Tolbert had been sworn in as the 20th president of Liberia. Tolbert was in the countryside and immediately upon his arrival was sworn in while still wearing his short sleeve blue working attire, which subsequently became known as the swearing-in suit. So you can see right there, I think that uh, Tolbert is not naive to the prospect of the United States meddling in Liberian politics, uh, primarily motivated by their perception that Tolbert was too sympathetic to Nkrumah and Touré, the two socialist Pan-African uh, figureheads at that time, who Tubman had been very hostile to. And pretty quickly, uh, Tolbert moved to basically consolidate his power in Liberia. He dismantled parts of Tubman's security apparatus and restructured both the military and the security services. He dismantled a comprehensive spying network where selected Liberians known as relations officers were paid monthly salaries for spying on their fellow citizens and colleagues. And he also promised publicly to uphold freedom of speech and uh, 
pretty much ushered in a period of, of relatively greater political freedom, especially at the University of Liberia. And also, and this is uh, something that will, I think is not insignificant and will come up later. Um, he, as I believe the Grand Master of the Masonic Order of Liberia, he uh, sort of changed the policy so that younger generations of politicians did not need to be Masons in order to participate in politics. Um, which potentially pissed off some of the true Whig old-timers and uh, sowed some seeds of resentment. So pretty quickly, he signaled uh, Tolbert that he actually was sympathetic to Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Toure. In fact, he was selected as one of the pallbearers at Nkrumah's funeral in 1972 and then participated in a symposium put on by Sekou Toure uh, where he praised both of them and used a lot of rhetoric that was much more sympathetic to kind of left-wing Pan-African currents than uh, his predecessor. And he also, uh, I believe in, in September 1971, he cautiously outlined Liberia's new economic direction in a nationwide broadcast. His direction resonated not only with proponents of liberal capitalism, but also with groups who were oriented in a socialist direction. The policy was launched with the slogan, Higher Heights, aiming at achieving a wholesome functioning society through the total involvement of the Liberian people who should lose themselves in new levels of alert where merit and not favoritism, connections, or selfish individualism would form the criteria for real distinction. And he also signaled, even though he, he reaffirmed the government's commitment to the open door policy and pledged to support and protect legitimate foreign investments, he did indicate that the new direction would include, quote, closer resource control by the government. He further announced a new Liberianization plan to review and strengthen the, quote, existing institutions and study the possibility of creating new institutions to enhance a greater participation of Liberians in the economy. This was a component of, of a comprehensive development strategy aiming at, quote, industrialization of the nation as an urgent priority, which Tolbert announced weeks earlier at the University of Liberia. So he wanted to create a national development plan to provide for a planned economic growth, which would ensure satisfactory housing for wage earners and within a decade make Liberia, quote, and a red flag, self-sufficient in rice, the nation's main staple food and other basic foods for the wholesome functioning society must be able to feed itself. Now, we talked in the first chapter about the U.S. Agricultural Trade Development Assistance Act, Public Law 480, PL 480, which was later called Food for Peace, and how basically it was used almost as a weapon to uh, undermine the self-sufficiency of, of Liberia um, in basically uh, cratering the price of rice through a very uh, conscious campaign. A lot of this rice was given to Firestone, who then flooded the local markets um, almost in a, in a very specific scientific way to drive down the price of rice just low enough that a self-sufficient farmer would make less selling their rice than they would as a wage worker on the Firestone plantation. So this literally was kind of a a, uh, a law masquerading as food assistance that actually had the goal of pro kind of forcibly proletarianizing 
self-sufficient Liberian farmers through market mechanisms to make them wage laborers for Firestone, who were expanding and needed a constant influx of new low-wage labor to get all that rubber. So Tolbert seems acutely aware of this problem when he assumes the presidency, and he takes various steps over uh, throughout the 1970s to increase uh, Liberia's rice production and basically uh, make them once again self-sufficient. He seems aware that this is kind of... This basically serves as a tool to keep Liberia more dependent and more weak, and he wants to change that. Um, Now, he had a strong power base in the true Whig party and in several secret societies. He was the Grand Master of the Masonic Order and was also ranked Past Master in the United Brothers of Oddfellows. And he was also a senior member of an umbrella organization of the Poro Society, which is the most important traditional semi-secret society in Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea, and Ivory Coast. And more on the Poro Society later. That's going to play a, a, a pretty uh, significant role. And also, from 1965 to 1970, uh, Tolbert was the president of the Baptist World Alliance. So he was also a Baptist preacher, and it de- that definitely comes through in a lot of his uh, a lot of his public speeches as president. So he gets elected, you know, in his own right um, at the end of 1971, and basically he really does start reforming a lot of things. And I think this is where comparison to maybe Roosevelt might be apt in that he's still doing it within a capitalistic framework. And to some extent, you could say that he's sort of, in a way, uh, doing a version of what Roosevelt did, where he claimed to be saving capitalism from itself. And because he still had significant economic interests in the country and was a very wealthy man and I don't think wanted to go all the way to kind of a commit revolutionary class suicide. But nonetheless, he was trying to shift things in a slightly more progressive direction, including literally introducing a progressive tax system because it was a regressive tax system uh, previously under Tubman. So now the rich had to pay relatively more and the poor relatively less. Um, He opened up kind of educational opportunities and uh, expanded the healthcare sector and uh, instituted some of the first welfare programs uh, as well as uh, like basically like housing programs, like building, you know, houses and apartments and roads and things like that. In 1972, school fees were abolished at primary and secondary levels and tuition fees for higher education were reduced by 50% based on the philosophy that, quote, democracy requires a well-informed citizenry and education should be available to all. And that actually did lead to a a much bigger influx of uh, young people into the university system in Liberia. And because of the loosening of censorship, a lot of them ended up uh, becoming exposed to socialist and pan-African ideas and, you know, writings from people like Nkrumah. And uh, thus, over the course of the 1970s, a lot of the young people in Liberia, um, kind of for the first time, became much more sympathetic to kind of more radical left-wing politics, uh, which would kind of present some tricky problems later in the decade. But on the foreign policy front, Tolbert starts making some very interesting moves that uh, seem to have set off some alarm bells 
in Washington. So in June 1972, the Liberian government made the most significant policy shift by establishing diplomatic relations with the USSR. After a number of meetings with I.F. Filipov, USSR ambassador to Sierra Leone, an agreement was reached that facilitated the exchange of diplomatic missions at ambassadorial levels between Monrovia and Moscow with the aim of developing, quote, friendly relations to the benefit of the Soviet and Liberian peoples. And at the same time, uh, at the first OAU meeting where Tolbert was the president of Liberia in 1972, he praised the leading role of Nkrumah in the formation of the OAU and noted that, quote, one of the greatest achievements since 1963 is that we now understand ourselves better than we did, which is a great step forward. Echoing Nkrumah, Tolbert further stated the problems of Africa were enormous and, quote, it would be a great error for us to think that the developed nations owe us anything. Indeed, it is not unreasonable to consider that their own national self-interest will dictate and influence their attitudes and actions towards us. Our economic emancipation must be underwritten by ourselves. Political independence, as we have learned by bitter experience, is only the beginning of the struggle, not the end. New forms of imperialism are continuously being formulated with the objective of retarding the progress of our organization in its prime purpose of achieving the speedy emancipation of all the remaining pockets of colonialism. Tolbert also called for increased support to the, quote, freedom fighters in Mozambique, Namibia, Angola, and Guinea-Bissau, and insisted that the OAU change from rhetoric and ceremony to active engagement in, quote, arresting injustice and exploitation of the African continent. To do this, the OAU should have promoted inter-African trade, established a Radio Africa broadcasting complex, and created a research and information center to counteract the propaganda that is disseminated, quote, by enemies, and by so-called friends. He promised that Liberia will spare no efforts to join whatever collective action we shall determine is necessary to achieve freedom, independence, and economic emancipation for Africa and all its peoples. So, you know, he's uh, <laughs> he's he's taking a very different approach than Tubman, who was in power for 27 years, and is sounding, I mean... I think, uh, as far as pro-Western governments go, sounding relatively progressive in his rhetoric. Now, another thing that he wanted to do that, again, would not be very much appreciated in the United States is he started to revise the open door policy in 1972 and and he's, he signaled basically an intention to renegotiate a lot of the lease agreements with American corporations, including eventually the biggest one of all, Firestone. So around this time, um, after his uh, very pro-Pan-African speech at the OAU, President Sekutore of Guinea made a special tribute and praised Tolbert for his progressive policies and offered Tolbert any support he might need from Guinea now, this is, I think, prescient. He advised Tolbert to bear in mind that some people, quote, would brand him as a socialist if their interests were affected by his policy to develop Liberia for the benefit of the masses. Touré further stated that foreign expertise was needed to facilitate industrialization, but in this context, Touré referred to socialist countries rather than capitalist countries, since it was a common perception of the Pan-Africanists that the West was unwilling to assist Africa to industrialize because industrialization would make Africa less dependent on the neocolonial powers. 
so around this time, um, Tolbert, he's walking kind of a fine line because he doesn't want to openly piss off the U.S. or scare them, but he also wants to forge stronger ties with other African countries and is more or less kind of in agreement with them in their approach to development and their resistance to neocolonialism and imperialism. So he starts using, especially when he talks to Western sources uh, or journalists, he starts using a term called humanistic capitalism. So capitalism with a human face is basically, uh, which he linked to a notion of African socialism and a quote, Christian ethic. And he said African socialism a number of times. Uh, Han notes that it's never clear exactly what he meant. And this is kind of a vague catch-all term that was very malleable but i think he was uh basically he was trying to walk a fine line in not openly antagonizing capitalist interests in the west but also uh i think what he realized is that the eastern uh socialist uh marxist central planning concept uh approaches to industrialization actually would be quite effective in his country. So basically what he did was he starts making in 19, around 1973 and 74, he starts making diplomatic overtures to a variety of Eastern Bloc and communist nations. I believe the first one was Romania. So on August, in August, 1974, uh, Tolbert accepted letters of credence from H.E. Petracci Trofin, the first Romanian ambassador to Liberia. Subsequently, on September 30th, Tolbert made a state visit to Romania, which marked the first visit to a communist country by a Liberian head of state. This visit was significant because it lasted almost three weeks and resulted in a significant agreement meant to help Liberia to industrialize. In a joint communique, Tolbert praised President Nicolae Ceausescu for his, quote, dynamic leadership and the successes achieved in economic, social, and cultural development by the Romanian Communist Party. Through the agreement on scientific and technical cooperation, Romania sent advisory teams and specialists to Liberia to help the industrialization process. They built a metallurgical plant, a fertilizer plant, a wood processing plant, and processing plants for rubber products, including a program for Liberians to be educated in Romania. So that's kind of a big deal for him to spend three weeks there, bring in advisors. Eventually, I believe they established a educational exchange program where Liberian students could go to Romania and get um, education and technical training uh, in uh, all these things. So then uh, around the same time, he also, like we read, he established relations with the Soviet Union Um and then established relations with Cuba, which actually there was a State Department cable. I looked through the WikiLeaks uh, kind of a cable gate and uh, Kissinger cables and actually found a number of them from this period in the 1970s. And, um, you know, a lot of them are kind of you have to read between the lines and they're kind of lacking context. But I think they do provide an interesting window into the thinking of the U.S. State Department during this time. So, for example, in 18 uh, sorry, in April 1974, there was a there was a cable titled Liberia and Cuba established diplomatic relations. So what they say in this uh in this memo, and this gets back to something we talked about the first episode, the Liberian Ship Registry. 
which was basically set up by Secretary of State Edward Satinius and the CIA as a kind of um, almost like the tour of international shipping or the Delaware of international shipping, where you can kind of anonymously register these ships under the Liberian flag of convenience and do all kinds of shady bullshit without anybody really checking up on you. So uh, the cable says, on April 25th, Prior receipt ref tell Mr. Henry N. Conway Jr., president of International Trust Company in Trusco, American firm which manages Liberian ship registry for Liberian Maritime Commission, called on embassy to discuss potential problem posed by establishment of diplomatic relations between Liberia and Cuba. Conway advised that department had contacted Intrusco officers in U.S. and informed them that provision U.S. legislation with regard to prohibition of foreign assistance to countries permitting ships and aircraft under their registry carry cargoes to or from Cuba still pertains. Conway stated he plans to discuss matter with Finance Minister Stephen Tolbert, the president's brother, as soon as appointment can be arranged. He will recommend that GOL approve sending maritime notice from LMC to registered ships to reaffirm continued validity, Regulation 1.40, which prohibits Liberian flagships to engage in Cuban trade. Embassy officers briefed Conway on Background Section 620A3 of Foreign Assistance Act of 1961 and on problems that had arisen with countries which permitted their ships to engage in Cuban trade. After receipt, Emboff again spoke with Conway. He had not yet been able to schedule a meeting with Tolbert. He agreed to keep us informed of any reactions on his recommendation for issuance of maritime notice. In view of the fact that present Liberian ship registration regulations specifically prohibit ships engaging Cuba trade, and intention uh, in Trusco raised this potential issue with the Liberian government, Embassy proposes that no official representations be made by U.S. to GOL at this time. Even informal discussion would probably be interpreted by GOL as evidence of our peak over Liberian relations with Cuba. There may be danger that this could create more problems than it would resolve. Signed, Bean. Okay, so they're, they're, they seem a little bit uh, miffed about this, but the, you notice that they say, don't bring it up directly to Tolbert because this might cre- that might create more problems than it would resolve because we don't want to show how peaked we are over their establishment, uh, these diplomatic relations. So at the same time that they're making these overtures to communist countries, the Tolberts decide that it is time to renegotiate the 99-year lease agreement with Firestone Rubber Company. And this is a very interesting episode uh, in the history of the Tolbert administration. And again, I think a certain Kennedy parallel is going uh, to become apt, though kind of in reverse from the order in which the Kennedys were killed. So Hahn writes that, Tolbert's new policies, quote, clashed with the powerful multinationals in Liberia, in particular Firestone, when the government of Liberia began to review the Firestone concession agreement. Firestone was officially informed in early 1974 that the Liberian government wished to renegotiate the agreement. However, Firestone reacted in a very hostile way to the proposal with, quote, exceptional arrogance and a negative reaction towards the government of Liberia. In the initial negotiations, Liberia sought to impose upon Firestone the general laws of the country in terms of tariffs and taxation and to limit activities to present agricultural pursuits by excluding the rights of mining with royalty of not more than 10%. 
Furthermore, Liberia's proposal wanted to limit the concession area from 1 million acres to the 181,000 actually used by Firestone. This would include the removal of the clause that gave Firestone the right to use any government land not already devoted to some other incompatible use. On the land rental, Liberia wanted to increase the real rent from $0.06 per acre per year to $0.50 per acre per year. Regarding the social welfare of the laborers, Liberia further required Firestone to provide medical and primary school facilities in keeping with workforce and include a policy for the establishment and encouragement of economical viable communities. Firestone, unsurprisingly, rejected almost all the changes proposed by the government in such an arrogant way that the government officially demanded a change of attitude and an apology. The negotiations were led by the Minister of Finance, Stephen A. Tolbert, President Tolbert's brother, who made it clear to Firestone that, quote, it was difficult to play games with the new administration. And this is quite interesting. Uh, The negotiations were interrupted after Minister Stephen Tolbert died in a plane crash in April 1975. This was a major setback for the Liberian government, and many people in the government saw the death of Minister Tolbert as an assassination ordered by Firestone and the U.S. government to stop the renegotiation of the concession agreement. The negotiations resumed under the leadership of the acting Minister of Finance, Edwin Williams, and a final agreement was reached in May 1976. Many of the changes initially proposed by the government were suppressed, but Firestone agreed to be subjected to the laws of general application as pertaining to the Liberian tax code. So this was kind of a turning point for Liberian-U.S. relations to some degree. Uh, Hahn writes that the tensions between Liberia and the U.S. government intensified when the USG discouraged further foreign investment in Liberia as a result of the renegotiations of the Firestone Agreement. Subsequently, the Liberian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Charles Cecil Dennis, participated in the 199th anniversary of American independence at the U.S. Embassy in Monrovia on July 4, 1975, with, quote, mixed feelings. He described the U.S. attitude toward Liberia as, quote, somewhat ambivalent, while expressing a wish for a more reassuring relationship in the coming century of American independence. In September 1975, a Liberian Review Committee of U.S.-Liberian Relations concluded that, quote, the so-called special relationship had declined significantly from the American point of view. So hold up, though. Let's go back a second. Um, Stephen Tolbert, the president's brother, the, I guess you could say, Bobby Kennedy in this scenario, um, the kind of bulldog, like his brother's basically bulldog, like hard-nosed negotiator, who, uh, you know, tells Firestone it's difficult to play games with this new administration and they're not just going to roll over. He just happens to die in a plane crash at the end of April 1975 in the middle of negotiations. And it was widely suspected in Liberia that this was done by the CIA, basically. And... I looked through WikiLeaks to see if there was any cable traffic around this death. And sure enough, there was. I didn't find anything, you know, obviously admitting to it. But I found a couple cables that were interesting. So the first one is dated April 22nd, 1975, which is seven days before Stephen Tolbert's fatal plane crash in a Cessna. And it is titled, 
Stephen Tolbert versus Gabriel Doe, another chapter in the continuing saga of the Tolberts. So you can already see there's a little drip of hostility there in this cable. And I'll just read a little bit from it because it, we'll talk about it after, but I think the vibes in this memo are extremely fucked. And it's very creepy considering what would happen a week later. So the cable says, one, though hardly recovered from the tide of adverse public opinion set in motion by the Albert Port affair, the president's brother, finance minister Stephen A. Tolbert, again has permitted his emotions to overcome his intelligence. He has now become involved in a very personal vendetta against Gabriel Doe, one of Liberia's more outstanding young entrepreneurs. This time the feud is over a woman. Mr. Doe, the proprietor of Monrovia Suppliers, Inc., is a dynamic and successful young Liberian businessman. His firm holds the Mack Truck Agency and was recently appointed the sole agent for the General Electric Company in Liberia. In addition, Mr. Doe has substantial real estate interests in Monrovia, including two apartment buildings being leased by the embassy, hmm, interesting, and is a major shareholder in the National Logging Company, a timber exporter. Though both the logging company and the Mack Truck Agency have been affected adversely by the recent downturn in the world lumber market, Mr. Doe's growing business empire is considered sound and he has maintained a good credit rating. Now, all is being threatened by the vindictive finance minister. Stephen Tolbert is a notorious rake. Recently married to Carmenia Pierre, the daughter of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, with whom he had been carrying on an affair of several years standing while married to his previous wife, he still has a roving eye. He joked at the time of his most recent marriage that, quote, I change my wives like I change my shirts, but apparently girlfriends are more precious. When one of his conquests gave Steve up for Gabriel Doe and then had the temerity to marry his rival, Steve saw red. Despite all advice to the contrary, the spurned finance minister is using the full force of his position in an effort to ruin Doe. The first step in Steve's campaign was to have the finance ministry seize some trucks and other equipment belonging to Doe, but which Doe and the Bank of Liberia, his backer, had planned to sell to Foreign Minister C. Cecil Dennis Jr., Minister Dennis, one of the attorneys for Steve's Maserato group of companies, the other being Minister of Justice Lawrence A. Morgan, planned to use the trucks to haul gasoline to his Mersobi chain of gasoline stations. Steve contended that, since the trucks had been imported duty-free for use in the logging industry, and because the industry is depressed, are not now being used for that purpose, they are contraband. The ironic thing is that the trucks were being sold so as to permit Doe to reduce his indebtedness to the Bank of Liberia, in which President Tolbert and his brother, Steve, are major stockholders. The affair becomes even more convoluted since C. Cecil Dennis Jr., appointed to the board of directors to represent President Tolbert's financial interests, is president of the Bank of Liberia, and Steve's daughter, Stephanette King, is a board member appointed to represent him. Doe is now in the U.S., where it is presumed that he will be in touch with Mac, GE, and Chemical Bank of New York, which has minority interests in, but manages, the Bank of Liberia. However, if Department of Commerce should receive inquiries from reputable American firms, it may be advisable to let them know that Tolbert has taken out Doe hunting license. Signed, Manful. Okay, so... I do think it, it's relatively rare to see a State Department cable with this, this level of personal vitriol 
and kind of, I don't know what to call it, bitchiness towards a foreign government official. I mean, calling him Steve uh, over and over again, Steve saw red and get like digging into like his, his romantic life and uh, being, it seems very angry that Stephen Tolbert is beefing with this, uh, promising young businessman, Gabriel Doe, who has connections to the Mack Truck Agency and General Electric, and uh, seems to have a lot of U.S., uh, deep U.S. connections, I could say. And uh, I don't know what. Basically, you know, basically saying this guy's out of control, kind of implying at the end, if department or commerce should receive inquiries from reputable American firms, it may be advisable to let them know that Tolbert has taken out a doe hunting license. I mean, like, ha, ha, ha. Oh, I get it. It's a doe. He's a doe. Um, Just fucking weird. But also saying that this tracks with basically after the conclusion of the Firestone Agreement, uh, the U.S. government was advising American companies to not do business in Liberia. And it's just a little eerie that this is the tenor of uh, disdain that the U.S. Embassy has for Stephen Tolbert. And then seven days later, boom, his plane uh, falls out of the sky and crashes into the ocean. Now, there's one other interesting uh, U.S. State Department cable pretty much uh, a couple months after that, in August 1975, a few months after Stephen Tolbert's death. This cable is called Allegation that CIA was involved in death of former finance minister Stephen Tolbert. So this this recounts an incident where the aforementioned Charles Cecil Dennis, the foreign minister of Liberia, and somebody who is very financially intertwined with the Tolberts, brought up to U.S. Embassy officials uh, his concerns in a meeting with them, he brought up his concerns about the suspicious death of Stephen Tolbert. So he handed them a letter, which uh, I'll read here from, from Foreign Minister Dennis. Mr. Ambassador, I have the honor to express the concern of the government of the Republic of Liberia regarding certain reports in the news media relative to the alleged involvement of the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States in the death of the Minister of Finance of Liberia, the Honorable Stephen Allen Tolbert, younger brother of the President of the Republic of Liberia. According to news reports over Focus on Africa, a BBC program, of the evening of July 9, 1975, which news report was repeated over radio station Elwa in the morning of July 10, 1975, an independent Nigerian newspaper, the West African Pilot, carried an article in which it was stated that the CIA of the United States had carried out a, quote, brutal act which resulted in the death of the late Liberian finance minister and that this act, quote, was planned and executed by the agency's people in Liberia. Here under are relevant quotes from the article which appeared in the West African Pilot in Wednesday, July 9th, 1975, under the caption, Comment, Beware of Davis. Quote from this Nigerian article, Unfortunately, CIA actions are not limited to only gathering of confidential information about the internal affairs of the countries involved. Sometimes it takes much more violent and dangerous forms, as it was in some African sister countries. 
It is appropriate to recall here that in April 1975, the whole of Africa was shocked by the sudden death of then-Liberian finance minister Mr. Stephen Tolbert. At that time, some observers believed that Mr. Tolbert's death was not unconnected with his firm anti-imperialist stand and his intentions to limit and influence of foreign monopolies, mostly American, in the country. Now, as the Rockefeller Commission has completed an investigation of the CIA's activities abroad... Reports coming here from the circles close to the commission have it that, br- that a brutal act was planned and executed by the agency's people in Liberia. On July 9, 1975, the following news item appeared on the AFP teletype, which I quote here under. The independent West African pilot, blaming the recent death of Liberian Finance Minister Stephen Tolbert on the CIA, as well as the recent anti-government plot uncovered in Zaire, said that there was now growing awareness on the part of the Nigerian public of the Central Intelligence Agency's activities in Africa. Radio station ELBC carried a report of the information contained in the West African pilot news story, as well as that of the AFP. And I am sure, Mr. Ambassador, it should be no surprise to you if I said that this information is causing grave concern and much apprehension among our officials and people. Recently, in the July 18, 1975 edition of a Ghanaian daily, The People's Evening News, appeared again an editorial entitled Halt the CIA Menace, attributing the death of Honorable Stephen Tolbert to the Central Intelligence Agency of the USA. Dennis goes on, Considering the close bond of friendship between the Republic of Liberia and the USA, The government of Liberia is greatly disturbed by the fact that, in the face of these news reports in which allegations have been made attributing the death of the late finance minister to the agency of the government of the U.S., the CIA, the government of the U.S. has elected to remain entirely silent on these shocking reports. This makes it difficult to explain an attitude of indifference bordering on contempt to a matter which, I assume you would know, must be of grave concern to the government and people of Liberia. Please accept, Mr. Ambassador, the assurance of my high consideration and esteem. Sincerely yours, C. Cecil Dennis, Jr., Minister of Foreign Affairs. Now, the State Department person writes, Dennis also made an oral presentation in which he claimed not to be passing judgment, but which was quite accusatory in tone. I believe you are aware of background of stories referred to in text of Dennis' letter. He is first and only member of the Liberian government to raise subject with me. I believe him to be acting on his own without knowledge or consent of President Tolbert. I can only assume Dennis acting for personal reasons in attempt to embarrass me, this embassy, and or USG. I had hoped to see President Tolbert last night and discuss matter with him informally. Unfortunately, he did not attend function at which I expected to see him. I do not wish to request formal call lest matter assumes proportions of another personal confrontation between Dennis and myself. Therefore, I propose to use our reliable informal channels to get word to President of our concern on this matter. This can be done without difficulty. In addition, I request that Department authorized Deputy Chief of Mission, who will be charged affairs then, to deliver letter along following lines to Foreign Minister Dennis prior to his departure for Lima, August 20. And this is the letter they're going to send to the Foreign Minister. Mr. Minister, I have the honor to refer to your letter, which you handed to Ambassador Manful on August 15th. You will recall that your letter quoted several newspaper and radio reports alleging involvement of the U.S. CIA in the death of former Finance Minister Stephen Tolbert. Your letter also expressed the concern of the government and people of the Republic of Liberia over the fact that the government of the U.S. had, quote, elected to remain entirely silent on these shocking reports. Your letter characterized our silence as an attitude of indifference bordering on contempt. 
I regret you have chosen to interpret our silence in this manner. My government normally neither responds to nor comments upon the numerous base canards that are circulated about it by parties unknown who wish to embarrass it or cause difficulties for it among its friends. As regard the cited allegations, I categorically deny them and further state that no entity of the government of the United States was in any way involved in any event leading to the untimely death of the Honorable Stephen Tolbert. Our silence on the allegation is not a matter of indifference, but a reflection of our firm belief that such unfounded allegations should not be dignified by comment of the government of the United States. The only contempt we hold regarding these allegations is the party or parties who would circulate such stories and possibly cause injury to the long-standing and close relationships between our governments and peoples. Please accept, Mr. Minister, the assurance of my high consideration and esteem. Sincerely, Morris D. Bean, Charge d'Affaires. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, the, the foreign minister basically practically accuses uh, the embassy staff of CIA involvement in this death. There's another cable, which I won't read, but it does mention that, uh, actually, let me see right here, from 1975 in November, this is a few months later, where I don't know who this is written by, but they were mentioning that they were having a meeting with President Tolbert, and he said he would like to make a request to U.S. government on a matter of great personal importance to him, that of determining to the maximum degree possible the facts surrounding the death of his brother Stephen in an air crash near Greenville on April 28th. He said that after the Division of Civil Aviation had filed its report, he had appointed a special presidential committee to review and evaluate the findings. He said he was not completely satisfied with either report. He acknowledged the past assistance the U.S. rendered in initial investigation of the crash. However, in the absence of the missing engine, there was no sure way of assessing responsibility or of absolutely ruling out foul play. President Tolbert continued that he had instructed Minister Dennis to assemble the reports and to make a formal request for help from the U.S. government. When I saw for, uh, Foreign Minister Dennis on November 7th, he gave to me the following aid memoir and handed me copies of the accident reports. So he gives him this summary, and I guess uh, based upon the investigations conducted by the Ministry of Commerce, Industry and Transportation, Division of Civil Aviation, to determine the actual cause of this crash and review the accident report by a special presidential committee, it is the tentative conclusion of the Liberian government that, until such time as the missing right engine of the plane is recovered for thorough inspection, the possibility of foul play by as yet unattributable sources cannot be completely ruled out. Because of the rainy season, harsh difficulties were imposed upon the efforts to retrieve the missing engine. With the ensuing dry season and the more favorable weather conditions, however, it is hoped that the task of attempted recovery will become easier. Yet, in view of the limitations of equipment and required experts to conduct such an underwater exploration, and in consideration of the friendship existing between the U.S. and Liberia, the government of Liberia wishes to request of the government of the U.S. further assistance by making available the necessary experts and equipment to aid in the recovery of the missing engine in an effort to establish definitive reasons for the crash of the aircraft. November 4th, 1975, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Now, the American writes, I replied that I did not know whether we had experts or equipment available to attempt to locate the missing engine, how successful uh, search operations might be after the lapse of the time since the crash, or what the cost might be. I said I would transmit Liberian request to Washington for consideration. So... I think that is an interesting indication that 
you know, as late as November 1975, after the initial civil aviation investigations into the crash, Tolbert was not convinced that this was not an accident. And because I assume they were never able to find the right part of the engine was never recovered. So if there was some kind of tampering or bomb or something like that, it was lost at sea. And so they were never able to definitively prove it. So, you know, big Kennedy vibes there, though it is flipped. It's like if Attorney General Bobby Kennedy had died in a plane crash and JFK quietly thought that somebody had sabotaged his plane. So from this point on, 1975 to 1980, Tolbert keeps making moves. But as I read earlier, the so-called special relationship had declined significantly from an American point of view. So just to mention a couple more things that Tolbert did, which the U.S. government did not love. Um, One thing was that he broke diplomatic relations with Israel in 1973 and said at the UN, we must equally insist on full recognition and respect for the national rights of the Palestinian people by the state of Israel, especially their right to self-determination and a state of their own. Israel must withdraw from all occupied Arab territories. And a couple of historians noted this is a political move designed to align Liberia with African progressives and uh, move Liberia closer to the USSR and other socialist-oriented countries, and also the countries of uh, the heavily Muslim countries of North Africa as well. And around 1974, Tolbert started promoting a uh, a kind of UN declaration. Uh, on the establishment of a new international economic order, the NIEO, that was adopted in 1974. And it said in Article 1, the remaining vestiges of alien and colonial domination, foreign occupation, racial discrimination, apartheid, and neocolonialism in all its forms continue to be among the greatest obstacles to the full emancipation and progress of the developing countries and all the peoples involved. So that's pretty progressive language, you could say. And uh, Hahn writes about this. Among several recommendations for a new economic order, the declaration emphasized, quote, the right of every country to adopt the economic and social system that it deems the most appropriate for its own development and not to be subjected to discrimination of any kind as a result. This includes full permanent sovereignty of every state over its natural resources, and in order to safeguard those resources, each state is entitled to exercise effective control over them and their exploitation, including the right to nationalization or transfer of ownership to its nationals. The idea of an NIEO stood in sharp contrast to U.S. global interests. Tolbert promoted this idea internationally, which first materialized in a speech during a state visit to Guyana in November 74, and more significantly during the welcoming speech to H.E. Werner Schedlich, the ambassador of the German Democratic Republic, East Germany, when he presented his letter of credence to Tolbert in November 1975. On this occasion, Tolbert stated that the significant threat to humanity came from, quote, economic imbalances between privileged and deprived nations, which he asserted made a new economic order necessary in order to avoid global conflicts and welcomed an economic and technical cooperation between the two countries. And on top of this, on top of establishing relations with East Germany, he got the Liberian government to actively start supporting the various armed liberation struggles in Africa. 
And actually, it was after when Cuba became involved in the liberation struggle with Angola, Guinea-Bissau, and Mozambique, the Liberian government established relations with Cuba in April 1976. Liberia backed Cuba's effort to become a non-permanent member of the Security Council, the UN, which the U.S. saw as another confrontation with its interests. On African Liberation Day in May 1976, Tolbert stated that there was a need for, quote, the rededication of peoples of Africa to the objective of the total liberation from the scourges of colonialism, neocolonialism, and racism. The day after he made it clear in an interview to German television, Liberia would also be willing to send troops to southern Africa if requested by the OAU, quote, in order to bring about majority rule if the voices of reasons had failed and the only inevitable alternative is bloodshed. I mean, if that isn't kind of radical enough, uh, at the same time in a joint communique with President Kaunda of Zambia in January 1977, Tolbert expressed his fullest support for efforts directed toward the total elimination of all forms of racism, apartheid, colonialism, and neocolonialism in combination with an encouragement of promoting a new international economic order. This was followed by the establishment of the Liberia Fund for the Liberation of Southern Africa in February 1977. Liberia provided financial means to the African liberation movements through existing channels prescribed by the OAU to be used exclusively for the liberation of Southern Africa. Tolbert further noted that Liberia, as Africa's oldest republic, had an obligation to become even more totally involved in the struggle for the complete emancipation politically and economically of Mother Africa. So he was actually, this is not emphasized a lot, but basically he he was adopting a much more militant posture, particularly, we might notice, after the suspicious death of his brother, maybe he's starting to realize that the Americans are fake friends, to put it lightly. Mr. President, to begin with, uh, what do you see as the main problems facing Liberia? What are your main hopes in the next couple of years? My main problem is economic development. My hope is to overcome that problem. And the United States itself has had probably a rocky year economically, as you know. Has that had an effect here? Well, certainly. Anything that affects the uh, economic uh, condition in the states and the dollar would certainly affect us because, you know, our dollar value is more or less tied up with the value of the dollar of the United States. And uh, <clears throat> much of our trade that goes into countries that are affected by the the uh, dollar devalu devaluation certainly must have its unfavorable reflection on us here. What can we do? I, I know we're doing uh, uh, quite a bit, but what else? What can we do? Well, you can do a whole lot in helping us to solve the problem of economic development and making possible the infrastructures, uh, which some of which we have already. When I refer to the infrastructure, I talk about uh, roads that uh, can penetrate into the uh, remote parts of our country, accelerating our agricultural uh, uh, enterprise because our people are really now carrying on agriculture in a rather subsistent way and we want to overcome that, uh, introduce scientific methods so that their productivity can be increased the standard of our living of our people to be raised, the gap between the, the haves and the have-nots can be breached, and we can develop 
a real uh, middle-class citizenry that can come in and pool all of their resources together with all of our people in a totally involved manner to build our country up Mystic about some I sort am, of long-range settlement? I there? am optimistic. Uh, as I said, perhaps uh, my way of thinking uh, uh, as against war, and it makes me have wishful uh, objectivity in that respect, but that it's my feeling that uh, I have a feeling of optimism. Mr. President, we here in the States that the influence of uh, mainland China and the Soviet Union seems to be growing in Africa. Is this true? I would say that uh, in, by way of my assessment, I think the influence of China and the uh, Soviet Union is growing in, in Africa. Is, that, is there something that perhaps the United States is either doing wrong or should be doing that uh, it is not doing? And, and consequently, the uh, mainland China and Soviet Union are going into this vacuum? Well, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. I do not know what your great country thinks about it. Uh, but uh, the world now, it's moving with such speed until people have to seize every opportunity to fill any point that uh, may be considered uh, open, that may be considered a vacuum before conditions get in that might be difficult to get out. I think that it leaves with you to, to assess what you are doing in that direction. I, I get the feeling that maybe we're not doing enough. Well, make the assessment yourself. <laughs> in 1977, Tolbert announced that the policy of Liberianization would be enhanced which he said, quote, did not mean the nationalization of any enterprise or industry, but a significant participation of Liberians within the foreign companies at all levels. So he wanted foreign corporations to increasingly accept Liberians in positions of management in order to improve the skills of Liberians so they could become future managers in secondary industries, which should include steel production and rubber manufacturing. So he was trying to expand the Liberianization Act of 1975 to include heavy and technical industrial production. The Liberianization Act named 26 business sectors in the light industry as restricted to Liberian citizens as a protectionist measure for infant industries whose products should substitute basic imported goods, in particular fish, flour, and rice products. The Liberianization Act did not produce the expected outcome and the contribution from the light industry to the GDP only increased from 37 million in 1975 to 48 million in 1977 in real terms. But, uh, this is Han writing here, this was only because the only oil refinery company in Gardnerville partly reduced its production and prioritized delivery to foreign companies, often leaving Liberian-owned factories with a shortage of fuel. This oil refinery had been established by a U.S. company based in Oklahoma, and as tensions between the foreign corporations and the Liberian government increased over the Liberianization policy, the managers of the oil refinery slowed production. This provided an example of how problematic it was to have foreign corporations in control of key industries and services, and it created severe tensions between the Liberian government and the management of the oil refinery. So yeah, once again, you see the foreign U.S. ownership of companies, they could just turn off certain industries that logjam the entire process, the entire economic development project that Tolbert was trying to pull off at this time. And towards the end of the 1970s, 
The Liberian government also created more than 30 public corporations, such as Agrimeco, the Forestry Development Authority, Liberian Produce Marketing Corporation, Liberian Rubber Processing Corporation, and the Liberian Sugar Corporation. Many Liberians were sent to Moscow for training, where they acquired technical skills and became inspired by socialist ideas. I mean, that sounds like a good idea, but also a potentially dangerous one. So... He's opening these state-run enterprises. He is inviting in Romanian advisors. He's sending students to Moscow for technical training. And he wants to industrialize Liberia. You know, let's not forget they're one of the largest iron ore exporters throughout this period, but they don't have any uh, steel production capacity at all in Liberia. So Tolbert wants to change that. And all of these projects, it's often described when Tolbert's being written about in America that they just they just weren't working. Um, they just weren't this big government approach to development just wasn't producing the right results. The fact that it was pissing off every American corporation is sort of put to the side. Yes, that happened to be true as well. But the real problem was it was that it was failing Liberians and by the way, Tolbert was just stealing all this money the entire time. But Han kind of has a different interpretation. He says that there are significant fluctuations in the real GDP growth in the 70s because of the international oil crisis and the drop in the price of iron ore and rubber, which resulted in negative growth for some years. Opponents of the Liberian government used the negative figures and low growth rate to argue that the economic policy had failed. In contrast, the proponents of Tolbert's administration argued that industrialization takes time and the impact of the economic policy cannot be measured in terms of GDP over such a short period. The Liberian government also attempted to measure the informal economy, which was labeled the traditional economy, as a way to prove that economic growth benefited rural and poorest people. Based on estimates from essential products such as rice, coffee, and cocoa, the Liberian government claimed that the real average annual growth rate in the traditional economy was 6.7% between 1973 and 1977. So that's pretty healthy growth, actually. And in pretty much every metric, Liberia was trending in the right direction, partly because of the economic and scientific assistance they were getting from Eastern Bloc countries rather than from the U.S. and I will have played the 1972 interview with Tolbert at this point, but when the American interviewer asks him if the increasing influence of China and the Soviet Union in Africa was an indication that the U.S. wasn't doing enough, I believe Tolbert said something on the lines of, you be the judge, and burst out laughing. So I think that was an accurate reflection of the fact that actually... The United, the United States was not giving a ton of aid money to Liberia in the 70s. And the aid it was giving, like the Food for Peace program, was highly problematic because it was undermining certain aspects of their domestic economy and making them more dependent on America. So a lot of people had a vested interest, I think we can say, in negging Tolbert's economic reforms, both because, you know, socialist central planning, of course, does not work. And also the U.S. corporations that are very powerful in the U.S. 
aren't getting as big of a cut as they used to. And this is happening amidst a kind of global recession in the prices of iron and rubber. So they're getting a little bit antsy as the 70s go on. In fact, another strange thing I found in the WikiLeaks collection of uh, cables about Tolbert is an incident that it's very hard to find if you Google it. But if you go to newspapers.com, I was able to find an actual, an original article. This was written about at the time, and it became a bit of a scandal for Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. So this cable is titled, Tolbert State Visit, Congress and the Open Microphone in October 1976. So Tolbert came over to the U.S. on this big state visit in 1976 when Gerald Ford was still president, and he was set to address the House of Representatives. And when he went there, uh, Nelson Rockefeller was in attendance and uh, was speaking with the Speaker of the House, Carl Albert, before Tolbert was going to come on. And unbeknownst to them, their mics got turned on early and certain comments of theirs were uh, recorded. And I'll just read, let's see, from the Durham Morning Herald in 1975. I was able to find an original news article about this, and it's kind of uh, fucked up and revealing, um, particularly because Tolbert had a certain relationship with both Nelson Rockefeller and David Rockefeller, who visited him in 1979 on a trip he made to West Africa. But anyways, this article is called Tate Picks Up Leaders Banter About Liberia, and they write, Unaware that their comments were being recorded inadvertently, Vice President Nelson Rockefeller and House Speaker Carl Albert engaged in some uncomplimentary banter Thursday about Liberia. Albert and Rockefeller were in the House chamber awaiting the arrival of Liberian President William R. Tolbert Jr., who was about to address the joint session of Congress. The session was slow to begin, but the tape recorder had already been turned on for use later by the broadcast media. Rockefeller told Albert that a class system exists now in Liberia, which was settled 150 years ago by freed American slaves. He said the repatriated blacks have taken on the characteristics of their white southern masters. They never let local blacks get in, he said. Later, a spokesman for Rockefeller said, quote, The vice president was only describing past history. He has the greatest respect and friendship for President Tolbert and the people of Liberia. He has great admiration for their democratic system and what they have achieved as a nation. There was no immediate comment from Albert. In the exchange, as recorded, Rockefeller said erroneously that Senator Edward Brooke, a black Republican from Massachusetts, was a one-man receiving committee for Tolbert's arrival on Capitol Hill. Said Albert, he'd be a slave if he were over there. Informed of Albert's comment, an aide to Brooke said the senator was, quote, a little surprised and sort of shocked. This is the exchange, as recorded by broadcasters. Albert says, are there many of the Liberians that are mulattoes? Rockefeller says, most straight blacks, real black. They've got a class system. The blacks who went back to Liberia took on the characteristics of the Southern whites, and they treated the local blacks, Albert says, they never let the local blacks get in on anything, but they've slightly changed their speech, but only slightly, Rockefeller says, only slightly. Ed Brooke, a one-man receiving committee. Albert says, yes, he'd be a slave if he were over there. Rockefeller, who was knighted by former Liberian President William Tubman in 1959 while on a West African tour, had a private meeting with Tolbert on his schedule Thursday afternoon. 
At a National Press Cup luncheon Wednesday, Tolbert was asked whether it is true the ruling class in Liberia systematically excludes indigenous blacks. Tolbert angrily denied such was the case, and he challenged the questioner to visit Liberia so he could see the situation for himself. Rockefeller went to Blair House, across the street from the White House, for his meeting with Tolbert about three hours after Tolbert's address to Congress. A member of Tolbert's entourage, Jimmy Don, presented Rockefeller with a traditional Liberian gown and named him a paramount chief of the Saklipia Ma Chiefdom of Nimba County. Rockefeller also received a gown for his, quote, chief wife. Tribesmen are permitted up to 40 wives. It's so bizarre. They love mentioning the kind of uh, multiple, having multiple romantic partners or polygamy aspect over and over again. But yeah, so Rockefeller was kind of caught talking a little bit of shit about Liberia and strangely saying that uh, Congressman Ed Brooke would be a slave if he were over there. That's what Albert said, actually, which I don't think is even... Literally not true, but even the the idea that an African-American would be like a second-class citizen is like an odd take. But yeah, so that was kind of, there were cable, there was cable traffic from Kissinger basically writing about this. And um, Kissinger quotes Vice President Rockefeller's statement to Tolbert, that, uh, which was read to Ambassador Dennis on, over the phone that evening. Rockefeller said, I am distressed that random comments between the speaker and myself prior to the ceremonies today were picked up and distorted in a way that might create a most unfortunate impression, which is totally contrary to the great friendship between our two peoples and the close and mutually beneficial ties which exist. This misunderstanding was particularly unfortunate, coming at a time when you were so gracious and your sensitive, forthright, and effective speech made such a tremendous impression on the members of the Congress at the joint meeting. I feel especially badly that any false impressions might be created. With warm regards from your friend, Nelson A. Rockefeller. And the last thing that Kissinger writes here is, uh, the State Department's position is to discourage discussion on this subject. If asked, Embassy should only note that the Vice President has already conveyed his regrets to President Tolbert to the latter's satisfaction. Kissinger. So yeah, that was an embarrassing moment, and I think it probably reinforced uh, to Tolbert that it was hard not to interpret that a little bit as a diss basically you come there you're supposed to be given respect as a fellow leader and it would not be the last time that a liberian leader would be dissed in a situation surrounding a state visit to the u.s there's a very like abusive kind of gaslighty vibe that the u.s uh seems to engage in so that's a little bit of the flavor they are still pretending to be great friends. Uh, the Rockefellers, I mean, like I said, David Rockefeller uh, took a visit in February 1979 to Liberia to uh, basically meet with William Tolbert. And Tolbert, for his matter, when Nelson Rockefeller died in 1979, he sent a letter to Jimmy Carter expressing his condolences and saying that uh, Nelson Rockefeller was a great friend and a great American, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if we think back to the first chapter, what one of the earlier Liber Liberian presidents, um, either Barclay or King, said to Marcus Garvey's people is that we do not tell the Americans what we actually think. 
we tell them what they want to think and what we want them to think. That is how we do or rather don't do in Liberia. And I think Tolbert was trying to execute that strategy basically of remaining by all outward appearances a great friend of America, but pursuing a policy that had much more in common with the left-leaning African countries and was getting lots of material assistance from the Eastern Bloc. So I'm going to read a little, another section from Hahn titled U.S. Responses to Tolbert's Policies. And he writes, From the beginning, Tolbert's government was aware that its development strategy, promotion of pan-Africanism, and relations with the USSR and other socialist-oriented countries was perilous because it would upset the U.S. and foreign corporations operating in Liberia. However, the general view is that the Liberian government could not discern any alternatives because policy recommendations coming from the U.S. were seen as anti-developmental, aiming to keep Liberia dependent on U.S. military protection and financial aid and prevent industrialization. This dependence would allow the U.S. to dictate Liberia's economic policies in favor of foreign corporations and a small Liberian elite, as during the Tubman administration. Although the socialist-oriented countries also had their agendas, they were not seen as being anti-developmental and were willing to assist Liberia with the implementation of industrialization projects. The Liberian government was also aware of how vital Liberia was for the U.S. in terms of military installations and intelligence operations in Africa that were often carried out from Liberia. They hosted the most significant U.S. embassy in Africa with more than 250 American employees, and the VOA in Liberia had some of the most powerful radio transmitters in the world, covering the African continent. Liberia also hosted the U.S. Diplomatic and Intelligence Communications Relay for U.S. embassies in Africa and West Asia, and in 1973, the U.S. had signed an agreement with Liberia for the installation of the Omega antenna as part of a comprehensive U.S. Omega navigation system. The Monrovia Deep Seaport and Roberts International Airport have been turned over to Liberian civil authorities, but the U.S. maintained the rights to use these facilities for military purposes. The Liberian government expected that the U.S. would try to instigate regime change in one way or another. Several intelligence reports indicated that the U.S. Embassy had attempted to bribe key government officials to turn against Tolbert and create internal splits. Therefore, Tolbert had placed some of his most trusted supporters, including some family members, in crucial positions to make it more difficult for the U.S. to create internal splits. It was therefore expected that coup attempts would come from the military because the U.S. had a significant influence on the AFL, former Liberia Frontier Force, relating to loan agreements. This was one of the reasons Tolbert did not trust the AFL. In preparation in 1978, Liberia signed a mutual defense pact with Guinea, where Liberia would have the recourse of Ghanaian troops in case of an emergency. The fear of a military coup was justified as a number of Pan-African leaders were assassinated through covert action initiated by Western intelligence agencies in the 1960s. For example, uh, Cameroon's Felix Mumi in 1960 and Congo's Patrice Lumumba in 1961 in 1961 were assassinated, and Krumah in 1966 and Madibo Keita of Mali in 1968 were removed from power through military coups. Between 1966 and 1976, African nations experienced 109 coup attempts and 51 were successful. In 1975 and 76, the Church Committee published 14 reports on U.S. overseas intelligence activities. The report recorded 900 major operations and 3,000 minor operations. 
These reports came out during ongoing Firestone negotiations, and the information contained in the reports reinforced Liberian people's belief that the death of Minister Tolbert was linked to the CIA. Nevertheless, the government of Liberia continued to support initiatives that could have placed Liberia at the forefront of advancing African liberation. In 1978, the government inscribed in fundamental guidelines its, quote, commitment to the total liberation of Africa from the scourge of colonialism, neocolonialism, racist minority rule, and apartheid. Liberian politicians, intellectuals, and activists had connections to influential black movements in the U.S., such as the Black Panther Party, who supported the pan-African liberation struggle. Stokely Carmichael, a Black Panther member, changed his name to Kwame Ture in 1978, in honor of Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Touré, and sought to organize the AAPRP, an associated army, in West Africa. This political space provided by the Liberian government gave birth to something called the Movement for Justice in Africa, or MOJA. It was established at the University of Liberia in 1973 to support the liberation struggle in the continent. Tolbert had supported the founding of MOJA and its pan-African ideology inspired by Nkrumah, the movement grew fast in Liberia and had representatives in the U.S. Within six years, Moja had become an international movement with branches in Nigeria and Ghana and representatives in East, Central, and Southern Africa. Political education was provided for thousands of members through public lectures, radio, TV programs, and mass rallies. Several Liberian members gained firsthand experience with the armed liberation struggle through visits to military training camps in Guinea. The main leaders of Moja were intellectuals such as Amos Sawyer, H. Boima Fambula, Du Tuanwale Mason, and Togba Na Tipote, who was the chairperson. Moja appeared as a radical left-wing pan-African movement. However, according to Tipote, quote, Moja should have been seen as a popular movement that focused on human rights and justice in Africa, not in terms of left and right, because this left-right political concept was a Western invention that cannot be applied to the African context. Moja was split into several subsections, and significant parts of Moja were strongly inspired by Marx, Lenin, and Nkrumah. Many of the members had strong connections to the USSR, East Germany, Libya, and Guinea. Moja is often represented as an opposition movement to the government of Liberia, which was unhappy with Moja's activities. However, many of the leftist members of Moja supported Tolbert's policies, which in practice were more radical than the general discourse of Moja, mainly because the Liberian government used state power to promote the liberation struggle internationally and supported it financially. Tokpa stated that it was difficult, if not impossible, to get a clear picture of the Liberian political environment in the 1970s. Many Liberian intellectuals and activists were inexperienced in political organization, and there was not a deep-rooted understanding of Marxism. They used Marxist-Leninist terminology because it was popular, but often in awkward ways, which created confusion about race and class. Furthermore, the knowledge about U.S. campaigns against left-wing pan-African leaders and the U.S. counterintelligence program that targeted black activists and socialists in the U.S. created an atmosphere of suspicion and fear. The political environment was influenced by contradictory information, rumors, propaganda, and allegations of CIA infiltration in Moja and the student union. For example, one of the top leaders of Moja, Amos Sawyer, who later became head of state in 1990, was accused of being connected to the CIA by Kamini B. Wesse, another influential Moja leader and personal friend. Wesse based his accusation on information he received from the East German intelligence service, the Stasi. So yeah, 
this is an extremely complicated uh, and often misunderstood period of sort of civil political uh, activity in Liberia. And CIA infiltration apparently was quite rampant. So a little more on Amos Sawyer, because he he's a guy who will pop up in as a kind of minor character in many subsequent chapters. But it's important to maybe get a, a bit of a read on who he is. In his writings and public pronouncements, Sawyer used strong anti-imperialist and socialist wording, which was captured in the article Capitalism and the Struggle of the Working Class in Liberia. This article provides an analysis of Liberian society based on the dichotomy between Americo-Liberian and the indigenous people, which they refer to as the dominant class and exploited class, respectively. They do not address the significant shift between the Tubman administration and the Tolbert administration, but argue that the ruling class in Liberia relies on the, quote, imperialist power, principally the U.S. and its European allies, for political, economic, military, and ideological support. In return, these powers and the international corporations based in them are assured continued domination and exploitation. By drawing on the ideas of Kwame Nkrumah, Sawyer argued that, quote, the struggle against neocolonialism heralds the death of imperialism through the destruction of the deformed capitalist structures, which will never be a dinner party affair, but will result in acts of violence. They conclude that it is necessary to formulate a strategy for liberation based on a compelling understanding of our realities, to confront imperialism and its faithful running dog servants by mobilizing class friends and isolate class enemies. Another influential movement that used left-wing rhetoric to delegitimize de the government of Liberia was the Progressive Alliance of Liberia, PAL, or PAL. PAL was a grassroots movement, and honestly, if... If Moja had a little bit of maybe allegations of susness, uh, Pal is way more intense. But Pal was a grassroots movement established in December 1974 in the United States among Liberian university students. Pal viewed Moja as an elitist intellectual movement. After meeting with Tolbert in the U.S. during a state visit in 1976, Pal was encouraged to register in Liberia and participate in political life. Powell did so in 1977, and in 1979, Powell was established as a political party under the name the Progressive People's Party, the PPP. The movement was headed by Gabriel Bacchus Matthews with the aim of, quote, bringing about a revolution in Liberia. Powell applied Marxist revolutionary rhetoric as reflected in their Revolutionary Action Program of 1978, which states that, quote, the people must gain control of state power and therefore their government, capitalism, the alien ideology identified in Liberia, must be expunged along with the prejudices of bourgeois society. A socialist state must be built on the true values of our people. Americo-Liberianism or black colonialism must be eroded. Liberia must cease to be a staging base for American imperialism and a relay station for transmitting counter-revolution in Africa. Corporations wielding a massive concentration of economic power over the people must be nationalized. Those guilty of the exploitation of the people must pay reparations. Totally free education must be provided. All medical services must be free, improved, and effectively delivered. The state must ensure manpower development and the total employment of the labor force through the establishment of state enterprises and agricultural communes throughout the republic. So that, that I mean, that sounds pretty... Uh, 
pretty based, pretty uh, revolutionary, right? But it gets a little more complicated and maybe even gets a little bit into Crazy Tom territory. So Han writes, despite the Marxist outlook, Matthews made it clear in an interview with West Africa magazine in 1980 that Powell was not a Marxist group. However, they used Marxist theory, quote, as a source for understanding the historical formation of classes. Powell had espoused the principles of African socialism, which, according to Gabriel Bacchus Matthews, existed in Africa before Marx and therefore cannot be an alien ideology. He further claims that there was a significant difference between Powell and Moja. Powell, in only a few years, became one of the most powerful popular movements in Liberia. Gabriel Bacchus Matthews was a frequent guest at the U.S. Embassy in Monrovia, and it was perceived by many intellectuals, politicians, and activists in Liberia that Powell was directly linked to the CIA. (laughs) So, oops, there you go. Talking a big game, but... uh, However, when Matthews was asked in the same interview by West African Magazine how he responded to an allegation that Powell is more or less a front organization for some, quote, big shots. Matthews rejected such connections. Former General Secretary of Powell, Marcus Don, states that he was not aware of any CIA involvement, but when looking back, it is likely that Powell was infiltrated by the CIA because, quote, the Americans felt angry regarding Tolbert, who in the heat of the Cold War invited communist countries into Liberia. However, It was difficult for most members of Powell to know what was occurring because Powell lacked the intellectual political analysis needed. They did not have knowledge concerning differences between socialism and communism and had little understanding of Marxist analyses. They acted upon general feelings of grievance and they saw the Americo-Liberians as their class enemy. In contrast, Wesley Johnson, former vice chairperson of Powell, notes that both Moja and Powell were motivated by the U.S. government and the top leadership had, quote, access to U.S. functionaries where they sought advice and they studied in the States. He further stated that some people were naive and did not see the danger in the CIA connection. To the leadership of Powell, the people from the CIA, quote, were like our friends. Communication took place, quote, through telephone and visits, personal talks in the United States and in Liberia, through letters, but coded letters. So once when a message reached the government, they could not decode it. Only the executive members knew it was in the message. Much of the knowledge was divided into cells, compartmentations. One cell would not know what another cell knew. We knew the coup would come, but we didn't know when or how it would take place. So that's a pretty, that is something that you very rarely see discussed in Liberian history in American sources, or it's usually brushed away as Liberians being paranoid once again. But that's straight from some of the actors involved, that the CIA was setting up compartmentalized cells, helping people, sending coded, like encrypted letters, all this kind of shit. And then a lot of these young student radicals, very similar parallels to kind of the SDS and Crazy Tom and the infiltration of the Black Panther Party, they unfortunately had a certain naivete around collaborating with the Central Intelligence Agency. They thought they were like our friends. But this is all about to come to a head as this movement is kind of getting uh, picking up steam. And finally, we're coming back to Rice. So in 1979, when the government of Liberia announced it would increase the price of imported rice from $20 to $22 per 50 kilogram bag, 
Powell claimed that this is a way to boost the profit of the already wealthy rice importers and to promote Tolbert's own private rice production. Don claimed that that rice imported from the United States under the PL40 program should only cost $5 per 50 kilogram bag and if sold on the Liberian market for 15, the Liberian government would still get $10 in revenue per bag and the Liberian people would get cheap rice. Powell began to mobilize thousands of people and prepared for a major demonstration in Monrovia on the 14th of April, 1979. Gabriel Bacchus Matthews applied for permission to demonstrate, which the government rejected because it considered the demonstration would not serve any useful purpose except to incite public violence and discontent. Mojo was split on this issue, but many people in the leadership, such as Tipote, supported the argument that the increase in rice prices was for the benefit of Tolbert himself. Powell ignored the Liberian ban on the demonstration, which occurred, which still occurred, and became uncontrollable. Shops were looted and cars were burned. Many sections of the police force and the AFL showed sympathy for the demonstrators by looking the other way, whereas other sections of the security forces confronted the demonstrators and opened fire into the crowds. The number of people who died is disputed, but it's estimated between 30 and 100 people died and about 500 were injured. This incident became known as the Rice Riot, and the government of Liberia saw it as the work of foreign powers that used latent revolutionary spirit embedded in the poor people to destabilize the Liberian government. In a speech to the nation on May 5th, 1979, Tolbert stated that the incident was a result of an illegal demonstration in defiance of law, designed and executed by a group of misguided persons calling themselves the Progressive Alliance of Liberia, aided and abetted by its internal and external collaborators, using the rice price issue as an alibi. The true objective of the illegal and diabolical action was to create a civil disturbance so as to adversely affect our economy and destabilize our government. Based on an investigation of the event, Tolbert further stated that... We now know that the agitation was fomented by covert and overt opponents to our policies. We know now that a number of those involved in the illegal demonstration were misled and incited by motives of a subversive and treasonable character. We now know that conspirators and those who aided and abetted the civil disturbance include a few inordinate individuals unappreciative of our chosen course. We also know that there are still others who have sought every means of defeating our program for social cohesion, the building of mutual confidence, and the virtue of patience. So these rice riots were absolutely horrible and had a massive destabilizing effect on the Tolbert administration. But before we talk any more about the fallout of the rice riots, I want to go back just a year or two earlier because something else happened in Liberia in the late 1970s that would be a very dark harbinger of what was to come later. And I'm talking about the Maryland County Ritual Murders.
so this really deserves mentioning in the context of any later discussion about cannibalism during the Liberian civil wars. But we need to, I think we need to talk for a second about the spiritual dimension of political power in Liberia. Because it is a country that, of course, uh, as we kind of went through in the first chapter, is uh, intensely religious, um, both in terms of uh, the Christian faith in Liberia that was brought over uh, from the United States, but also the minority Muslim population, uh, the Mandingos um, up in the, the north of the country. Um, but also the traditional religions of the tribes, of the indigenous tribes of Liberia, and the uh, organizational forms that those took, the chief among which were the Poro and the Sande societies. The Poro was for men, the Sande was for women, and um, they ran what were commonly called bush schools, which were sort of a, uh, a rite of passage for young men and women uh, in order to sort of become adults they would go out into the bush and usually a zoo or a priest um, would train them in their social roles and basically it provided a very um, essential kind of social social function for these tribal societies and over the course of the 20th century it's sort of uh became a little more mainstream and after a while uh, in some respects rose to be almost like an analog, like an indigenous analog of the Freemasons the, uh, that the America Liberians were. So by the 60s and 70s, uh, you had people like William Tolbert who would become a zoo or a high priest in the Poro society as a way to cement relations with the various tribes that uh, practiced Poro. But then in 1977, something very shocking and very scary happens. I'm going to read from a website called LiberiaPastAndPresent.org, which has uh, a nice little walkthrough of this. So, Maryland County, Liberia, 1977. President Tolbert was angry. At least he appeared to be. More than 10 persons had been missing in ritual killings in Maryland County, and his personal representative, the county superintendent, had not reported anything. Worse, he even had received a message that the superintendent, the highest public official in the county, had obstructed the work of policemen investigating these murders, which evidently were ritual murders since all victims' bodies had several parts missing when found. Subsequently, and at various occasions, President Tolbert made it very clear I cannot tolerate this. He knew what had happened and still happened in the country. He knew that the ritual murders in Maryland County were not the only ones in the country. Reports had reached him that they occurred in various parts. In fact, all regions, from Maryland in the east to Cape Mountain in the west, but also in Lofa County in the northwest, as well as Nimba and Bong and Bassa, President Tolbert seemed determined that this should end, and therefore he declared publicly, anyone who kills deliberately the law will kill that person. Between mid-July 1977 and mid-February 1979, it seemed as if an earthquake struck the country. People who seemed to be untouchable were accused, arrested, even convicted, and finally executed. This had never happened before in the Republic. 
The Tubman days were over, when people close to the president and like him from Maryland were set free after being found guilty by a lower court, but then set free by a Supreme Court, whose chief justice was also from Maryland County. President Tolbert undoubtedly was a clever man. Tubman had assured the services of a chief justice who, like him, hailed from Maryland. President Tolbert's chief justice, James A. Pierre, was a member of the Tolbert clan. His daughter, Carmenia, was President Tolbert's sister-in-law. She was the wife of one of his brothers, Stephen Tolbert, the powerful minister of finance and also a successful businessman. President Tolbert decided to act in the wave of Maryland ritualistic killings. Why did the preacher president do this? Was he sincere in combating the ritual practices, or was there something else behind his firm stand, anyone who kills deliberately, the law will kill that person? The following narrative of the notorious Maryland ritual killings case is more than the story of a ritual killing. It is also a story of political ambitions and fights. As previously reported, on July 16, 1977, President Tolbert ordered five days of prayers and fasting. Among those who prayed in one of Monrovia's numerous churches was Alan Yancey, son of a former vice president, church leader, former chief of police, country attorney, cousin of former President William Tubman, member of the House of Representatives for Maryland County, and recipient of many honorary national and foreign distinctions. Also on July 16th, President Tolbert fired James Daniel Anderson, superintendent of Maryland County, for failure of not reporting the disappearance of 14 people in his county since November 1976 and of not taking any action. Superintendent Anderson was no small fish. His father was the national chairman of the True Whig Party. A few days later, former Superintendent Anderson, Representative Yancey, and nine more people were arrested, accused of ritual murder. The editor of one of the most prominent national newspapers certainly did not hide his knowledge and feelings when he wrote, The recent dismissal of Maryland Superintendent James N. Anderson came as no surprise. For too long have the citizens of Maryland been living in fret. More than a hundred citizens have been murdered in that county from 1965 to 1977. That was not a small accusation towards the local authorities. More than a hundred people murdered. Without any doubt, the writer meant ritually killed. Was his allegation based on facts or fiction? The question is hard to answer. What is sure, however, is that ritual killings in Liberia were by no means sporadic, as the list of ritual murder cases cited in this essay clearly demonstrates. It even is very likely that the cases discovered and published were only the top of the iceberg and that many cases of ritual killing have never been and will never be revealed. For people in Harper and other parts of Maryland County, ritual killings were a daily threat in the 1970s. I can speak from my own experience. In the late 1970s, I lived in Harper City, even in one of its most dreaded parts, on the peninsula leading to the lighthouse and the harbor. In the beginning of the road leading to the harbor stood the Masonic Temple. A few hundred yards further to the left was the yellow-painted mansion of the late President Tubman. Local people used to tell me how frightened they were walking that road at night. Too many people had disappeared without traces, and those who had been found later all shared the same fate, mutilated before being killed. One of them was Simon Toe from Grand Sess Territory. Two days after Simon Toe had arrived in Harper, he disappeared. Several days thereafter, Simon Toe's body was found on the beach with his intestine out of his body and other parts missing. Another victim was a girl whose name was not disclosed. She disappeared in the Firestone area near Harper. When she was found dead, her ear, throat, and tongue were missing. Unfortunately, there were many more victims. Generally, the assassins got away with it. Not the murderers of Moses Tway, however. 
Before the kidnapping and killing of Moses Tway has been reconstructed on the basis of reports published by all Liberian daily and weekly newspapers, below, the kidnapping and killing of Moses Tway has been reconstructed on the basis of reports published by all Liberian daily and weekly newspapers. Spelling of names of the accused, however, is not always consistent, and the dates of their arrest vary. Be that as it may, the story reads as follows. The next section is about the ritualistic murder of Moses Tway. Between mid-July and early August 1977, former superintendent of Maryland County and also former chairman of the local True Whig Party of Maryland, James Daniel Anderson, and member of the House, Alan N. Yancey, and 10 others were arrested in connection with ritual killings in Maryland County. There were big demonstrations in Harper when the suspects were brought to prison. Many people shouted, at least we've got them. We can now breathe of relief. This picture shows how one of the accused... Alan Yancey was treated. He and Anderson were forced to walk butt naked in the streets of Harper, carrying two buckets loaded with sand. The 12 people arrested were James Daniel Anderson, superintendent of Maryland County, Alan Nathaniel Yancey, representative for Maryland County House of Representatives, Francis Nyapen, assistant supervisor of schools, Philip B. Satan, senior inspector of the Ministry of Commerce, Maryland County, Joshua Brown, Chief Security Officer, Liberia Sugar Company, Taya Toby, Crew Governor, Tagbedi Wisse, Acting Chief of Grandsess Residence in Harper, Thomas Barclay, Cook of Alan Yancey, Juan Plu Boy, Domestic Servant for Francis Nyapen, Koti Wea, Chief Cook for the General Manager of the Firestone Company, Savala, Maryland County, Ray Terriano, Girlfriend of Francis Nyapen, and Putu Due. The suspects were charged particularly for the murder of Moses Tway, a fisherman and popular singer. Moses Tway, who originated from Grand Cess, was kidnapped on June 26, 1977, and his mutilated body was found a week later on July 3rd, near the Devil Rock in Harper. Missing from Tway's body were his eyes, ears, nose, armpits, testicles, and tongue, among other parts. Police investigation revealed that the arrested persons admitted of being involved in the murder of Moses Tway and that they divided certain parts of the body among themselves for, quote, juju purpose in order to obtain higher positions in the government. Accordingly, James Anderson wanted to be an ambassador. Alan Yancey wanted to take Senator William Shad Tubman's seat in the Senate. Philip Seaton was ambitious to replace Alan Yancey as member of the House, while Francis Nyapan's aim was to become county supervisor of schools. In his preliminary testimonies, assistant supervisor of schools Francis Nyapan, who held a master's degree in education from Howard University in the USA, confessed that when Tway was kidnapped on June 26th in Old Crew Town, he was kept in Nyapan's house until the night of July 3rd when he was taken in a government jeep to the backyard of Yancey's house where he was butchered by his, quote, boy, Juan Plu boy, Koti Wea, chief cook of the Firestone general manager, and Thomas Barclay, Alan Yancey's cook, in the presence of Yancey, Anderson, and others. When some parts of Tway were abstracted from his body while alive, Nyapan said that Alan Yancey took the penis, anus, and testicles. James Anderson took the throat, armpits, and piece of the intestine and the liver. Nyapan himself took a large piece of the intestine Seton received one eye and human blood contained in a small beer bottle, while the remaining parts were divided among other members of the group. After the torture and killing of Moses Tway, 
Niapan and Joshua Brown, who considered Niapan as his godfather, transported the mutilated body in the same jeep to the end of Harper Airport and took it across Lake Shepard to the Devil Rock, where they dumped it on the beach. Niapan also revealed that Yancey introduced his cook as the Juju Man. One of the other accused, Philip Seaton, revealed that while the victim was kept in Niapan's house, Ray Terriano, Niapan's girlfriend, fed him. Besides, it was Terriano who, prior to the discovery of Moses Tway's mutilated body, had remarked to a group of women who were searching for the missing man that if they would be so lucky to find him, only his bones they might see. Her remarks sparked her arrest, followed by the incarceration of others. On August 8, 1977, a week after his arrest, Alan Yancey was expelled from the House of Representatives by unanimous vote. Prior to the vote, President Tolbert had sent a letter to the Speaker of the House, Richard A. Henrys, one of his strongest supporters in the Liberian political arena, pointing out that Yancey was criminally involved in the Moses Tway murder case and that he was convinced of the inconsistency of his continuing tenure as a member of the House and therefore suggested the House take appropriate action. President Tolbert's action may surprise and certainly can be considered inappropriate. Nobody is guilty before he or she is found guilty after a fair and impartial trial. However, one should also know that it was not the first time Alan Yancey was involved in a murder case. Also during the Tubman administration, he was accused of the crime of murder, and as one newspaper reported, there were many other trials held in Harper over the years involving him. We make special reference to the Robert Moulton case, in which he was arrested for the crime of murder, and his arrest and trial for the crime of murder involving the late Gabriel Diggs, commonly called Watteau, and other cases in which he was involved. Alan Yancey had been indicted and tried a few years earlier, also in Harper in 1967, but was never convicted, allegedly because of the protection of his cousin, President Tubman. Yancey was then, quote, saved by the Supreme Court, presided over by Chief Justice A. Dash Wilson, who also came from Maryland County, which reversed the judgment of the lower court. So then we get the first Harper trial. The trial of the Gang of Twelve started in Harper on September 12, 1977. A few days later, two of the defendants, Joshua Brown and Taya Toby, were set free. Later, they testified as state witnesses. During the trial, Francis Nyapan told the court that he initially confessed to the killing of Moses Tway at gunpoint and under cruel treatment from the Maryland County Police, who he said arrested and mishandled him. Quote, I was dragged and given electric shocks on the tender parts of my body and was made to cut grass with my fingers and later placed on ice when the agents put me on a drum of water with blocks of ice. Nyapan further alleged that he was arrested and charged with the killing of Moses Tway as a result of a traditional juju ordeal that had been ordered by the then-acting superintendent of Maryland County, Nathan Barnes. Other defendants also complained of being maltreated, humiliated, tortured, and said their earlier confessions were given and extorted under severe torture. Police officers testified that James Anderson had obstructed police investigation of the disappearance of Moses Tway. The superintendent had ordered the release of two of the accused who had been apprehended by the police as suspects. The two, Juan Blue Boy and Koti Wea, had been released on July 3rd, the day of the night Moses Tway was killed. Newspaper reporting of the trial was abundant, and each and every detail of the last days and last hours of Moses Tway were published. State witness Joshua Brown revealed in detail the gruesome ritualistic killing of the victim. Quote, when I got in the yard of Alan Nancy, I saw old Pa Barclay and Cody Wea, who both came to the Jeep, 
And when Niapan opened the jeep, Wamplu Boy and Barclay held Moses Tway by the hands and walked him to the lime tree in the backyard of Yancey. There Barclay and Wea spread a dark flexible material on the ground and sat Moses Tway on it. At this time a circle was made around Tway under the lime tree, and Cody Wea came out of the circle and stood over Moses Tway. Then Wamplu Boy, standing before Tway, remarked to him in the crew dialect, saying, you remember sometimes ago, you insulted me before the public, and I told you I was going to catch you. Now, this is my time. As soon as Boy finished, Cody Wea took an axe and hit Moses Tway behind his neck twice, and while on the ground, Cody Wea held him by the shoulder, pulled down Tway's short black pants, and then then follows the, the gruesome details of the cutting of the body, which have intentionally been left out here because of their shocking content. Brown's and Toby's testimonies gave a full account of what happened. According to their testimonies and those of others, like the four Maryland County police officers, James Anderson and mastermind of the kidnapping and murder had given money for the kidnapping, $500, to Niapan and Seton, who in turn gave the money to Togbedi Wise, who had arranged the abduction. Putu Dway took Betty Wise, Francis Niapan, Philip Seaton, and Wamplu Boy kidnapped Moses Tway. Alan Yancey had organized the ritual killing, which was performed by Chief Bojo Kotiwea with the assistance of Wamplu Boy and Thomas Barclay, whereas Nyapan had divided the parts taken from Ray's body. Nyapan's girlfriend, Tariane, had cooked for the victim and fed him during his captivity. Anderson Yancey et al. denied any involvement in the murder of Moses Tway. The daughter of co-defendants Ray Terriano and Francis Nyapan, Laureen Nyapan, testified on behalf of her father and Beaufort Yancey testified for his father. Also, Miss Margaret Johnson testified for defendant Nyapan and said the accused was at home on July 3rd, the night in which Moses Tway was murdered and that he never went out until the next day. Miss Esther Watkins, a witness for defendant Anderson, told the court and jury that she slept with James Anderson in the same bed on the night of July 3rd and that Anderson did not go anywhere that night. On October 26, 1977, the jury found all defendants guilty. All the defendants were sentenced to death by hanging, and all but one appealed to the Supreme Court. The second Harper trial, the eight defendants, started on May 8, 1978. This was the appeal trial. Before the end of the retrial, another defendant died, Cody Wea. Then on June 9th, the jury's verdict was announced, convicting the remaining seven defendants for the murder of Moses Tway. Alan Yancey, James Anderson, Francis Nyapon, Philip Seaton, Ray Terriano, Putu Dwe, and Thomas Barclay. The seven defendants were sentenced to death by hanging. The Chief Justice uh, announced this decision. It upheld the conviction by the Harper Court and affirmed the death sentence for the seven murderers, which left them only one option, which was to get a pardon from President Tolbert. At the end of December, the Harper convicts were flown to Monrovia for security reasons. The Harper prison where they were held was found to be not safe enough. The transfer of the prisoners may have resulted from a possible attempt on part of some relatives to have one of the convicted poisoned in order to prevent him to end on the gallows and thus save his family the shame, which would have resulted from this disgraceful end. The family concerned was a very, quote, reputable and respected one. It was President Tolbert who revealed in the newspapers that unconfirmed reports had reached him that the brother of one of the convicted murderers, Eddie Anderson, deputy director of the Budget Bureau, had approached the medical director of Firestone Hospital in Kavala, near Harper, asking him whether he had any drug that could be used to poison his brother if the president decided to sign the death warrant. 
President Tolbert also openly declared that true Whig Party National Chairman James Anderson Sr., father of the convicted former superintendent of Maryland County, had approached him in order to review the decision of the Supreme Court. However, he had refused to consider the request. Quote, I will never permit myself to be influenced in one way or another by sentiments. I will do my duty when it is time to do my duty in the fear of God in keeping with the oath of office of the president. Shortly thereafter, he signed seven death warrants, sparing the life of Tagbadi Wise. And then there was the hanging. The place was Harper City. The day was Friday, February 16, 1979, 5 in the morning. More than 15,000 people stood in front of the gallows, which had been constructed a few days earlier. The gallows were situated near the public cemetery, at about 900 yards from the prison compound, where the seven convicted murderers had spent their last night. When the bus with the seven arrived, the crowd became quiet. That absolute silence of a 15,000 crowd was unbelievable and was one of the most extraordinary experiences I have had during my 16-year stay in West Africa. I stood next to a white priest who commented on their death sentence, approving it. It was nearly 6 o'clock and the sun started rising. The sheriff started the countdown a few minutes before 6 o'clock. At 6 o'clock sharp, he blew his whistle and the hangman did his work. Within seconds, the seven had died. The crowd kept silent for at least another 10 minutes. Then the people started talking again, louder and louder, until it was back at its normal volume. People approached the gallows, staring at the dead. When you kill, the law will kill you, my neighbor said, and left. The last section here, after the hanging. This is, by the way, this hanging is about two months before the Rice Riots. There was drumming and dancing in the streets, after the public execution of the convicted ritual killers. The crowd was singing and shouting slogans. They thus expressed their sense of happiness and relief. In future, they would have no more fears when walking at night in the city and its outskirts. Finally, justice had been done. But was this popular feeling correct and justified? There exists another interpretation of what happened on February 16, 1979, and prior to that date. However, let it first be clearly stated that the guilt of the convicted murderers seems to be beyond any doubt. The evidence against them was clear and convincing, not in the least supported by the confessions of state witnesses. Moreover, reportedly, Alan Yancey personally admitted that he was guilty. A few days after his son had been executed, the national chairman of the True Whig Party, James N. Anderson, resigned on February 20th, 1979, embittered, quote, Due to the machinations of wicked and cruel men, my eldest son James Daniel was hanged for a crime he did not commit, was what he wrote in the letter, tendering his resignation. Reportedly, he was also revengeful. His appeals for clemency for his son had found a deaf ear with President Tolbert and within the True Whig Party. In the weeks prior to the hanging, he had been very outspoken about his feeling of revenge in case Tolbert would not review his position. But President Tolbert persisted, and under the cloak of judicial independence, he refused to intervene, which sharply contradicts his interference when he wrote to the national legislature and asked for appropriate action against Representative Alan Yancey. In reality, however, it is very likely that the trial of the Maryland murderers and their conviction and subsequent execution was influenced by a power struggle within the Americo-Liberian ruling class. Not more than 30 families had always decided the country's fortunes and misfortunes, although they never ruled simultaneously. During the Tubman era, members of the Tubman, Padmore, Barnes, Brewer, Grimes, Sherman, Weeks, Anderson, and Yancey families climbed high on the political ladder. After Vice President William Tolbert succeeded Tubman in 1971, members of the Tolbert clan replaced them. 
Tolbert, Hoff, David, McLean, Holder, and Pierre families. Both Tubman and Tolbert used Liberians of tribal descent to broaden their political base and to compensate for the loss of support from some Americo-Liberian families by giving them high positions in the government or even cabinet posts. Within the true Whig party, the fight for power and public positions in combination with different opposing views on societal issues and development politics separated the two camps, although no clear line of demarcation existed due to the numerous intermarriages and other individual personal relations. For example, President Tolbert's daughter, Wokey, is married to Shad Tubman, the eldest son of President William Tubman, whereas a deceased daughter of Tolbert had been married to a Yancey. Liberian politics prior to the 1980 coup had very much been characterized by this mixture of relations. Against this backdrop, it is inevitable to pose the question, was President Tolbert sincere in his fight against ritual killings and other serious crimes? How sincere was he? It is difficult to answer this question without hesitation, be it with a straightforward no or a convinced yes. President Tolbert, who certainly had been close to a number of the ritualistic murders, which occurred during the administration of his predecessor, started his presidency in a flashy way, quickly introducing a number of reforms and changes. This earned him the nickname Speedy, but also brought him in conflict with the more conservative wing of the ruling political party, the true Whig party. It was not accidental that he took a firm stand once he was firmly seated in the political arena. When he took over the reins of government, Tolbert first finished Tubman's truncated term of office, but then continued the following four years on the basis of Tubman's victory in the 1971 presidential elections. In 1975, Tolbert had been elected in his own right, and his eight-year presidential term had started in January 1976. He may have been determined to introduce some changes which were long overdue in the areas of foreign relations, foreign investments, relations between the Americo-Liberian political class and the tribal masses, his fight against poverty, disease, and ignorance, etc. As the nation's president, he held the Constitution in one hand, but as a religious leader, he held the Bible in the other hand. His apparent sincerity in desiring political reforms and fighting lawlessness, however, is surrounded by a number of intriguing questions. Both before and after the arrest of Anderson, Yancey, et al., there have been numerous cases of ritual killings. Liberian press always very openly reported on dead bodies found with several parts missing, the most common expression to refer to ritual and cannibalistic practices. Arrests made in connection with these murders were pretty rare, whereas public trials, convictions, and public execution of the suspects found guilty were never reported, at least based on the same local newspapers. Were there cover-ups, like the case in Grand Cape Mount County, or were two mighty people involved whose loss of support Tolbert could not afford? Or had relatives been involved? It should not be forgotten that the Tolbert clan was one of the biggest in the country. Furthermore, President Tolbert had signed several death warrants since November 1971 when he signed the first one, sending a Nigerian science professor, Justin Obi, to the gallows. Subsequently, eight other convicted murderers had been hanged, among whom his cousin William Tolbert, who had killed his wife. The latest two executed murderers were Borbor Brown and Kakula Vagbor in 1978, who died from capital punishment after much attention. The Harper hanging was the fifth in the series since November 1971. Altogether, and including the Harper Seven, 16 convicted murderers had been hanged since 1971. Whatever one may think of capital punishment, 16 executions compares, relatively speaking, favorable with the several hundreds of convicted murderers in Liberian prisons. 
In fact, the capital punishment in Liberia was rarely executed, so the question emerges, why then in the case of the Harper 7? Was it because of his feelings of justice, or did President Tolbert pursue this case because he wanted to reduce the power of some influential Maryland families, in particular those who had been close to former President Tubman? We may never know the answer for sure. The following year, President Tolbert was brutally murdered in the executive mansion. In general, he shunned the mansion, reportedly because of his fear of the, quote, bad spirits, which, according to popular rumors, haunted the presidential palace and which were linked to ritual ceremonies which allegedly had taken place in it during the Tubman years. President Tolbert's death started the decline of America-Liberian supremacy, but it did not stop ritualistic killings in the country. Already a few months after the Harper hanging, the Sunday Express headed, Harper again? Several arrested for alleged kidnapping. What had happened? A student of the William V.S. Tubman College of Technology in Harper, who was returning home at night, was offered a lift by a pickup truck driven by some unidentified men. While en route, the student was attacked, but he was saved after a woman who was nearby, observing what happened, yelled, and the alleged perpetrators of the act disappeared. When the student was found, he was naked and tied with ropes. Later, the suspects were arrested on suspicion of kidnapping. In July of the same year, a ritual murder case in Sino County again shocked the nation. The hanging of the ritual murders in Maryland County did not deter a group of people in Greenville, capital of Sino County, to commit the same crime only a few months after the public executions in Harper. Again, some big names were involved, and eventually several high-ranking public officials were arrested and put on trial. The following year, in August 1980, I turned on the radio and heard a BBC report on a recurrence of ritual killings in Maryland County, Liberia. Among those arrested was the mayor of the county's capital, Harper. There may have been more, maybe many more, in the years which followed. We will never know how many. Take a look at the people who are starving on the street. 
So obviously, that is some extremely heavy, demonic shit that was going on. But it bears emphasizing that it was not members of any of the indigenous tribes of Liberia that were convicted and executed for doing these ritual murders to gain spiritual power and political advancement. It was some of the most elite Americo-Liberian political figures in the country. In a way, I mean, not to be flippant about it, but when people say things like that, uh, for example, uh, Pizzagate could never be real or the Franklin scandal was probably fake. It was a carefully constructed hoax. Well, in the 1970s, you literally have an example of people that were arrested, convicted, and executed that were in high political positions who were ritually sacrificing people for power. And it was enough to provoke um, a huge outcry. Another thing that you could kind of uh, compare it to is the Detroux scandal in Belgium, where even though you don't hear about these things in America, within this within Liberia, there were huge protests, huge outcry, a lot of media coverage, and it's pretty much beyond dispute that these things happened, even though I think it is interesting to think about the subterranean political conflicts that were going on within the true Whig party at that time that may have motivated Tolbert to crack down especially hard because this was basically, this was the son of the chairman of the true Whig party that had committed these ritual murders and was basically the core of the uh, William Tubman faction, which was on average more pro-capitalist, more pro-U.S., and more anti-Liberianization and state development and opening up to the Eastern Bloc, all these things that Tolbert was taking the initiative on. So, you know, the fact that Yancey and Anderson were executed and uh, in early 1979, the idea of it cementing the hatred of Tolbert by certain factions of the True Whig Party is something that I think uh, added fuel to the fire for what was going to come next, which was the Rice Riots in April 1979. And this was something that, I already read the summary of it before, it was something that completely spiraled out of control, ended up with anywhere from 30 to 100 people dead. There were thousands of people that I think one book uh, literally called Backstreet Boys that sort of flooded into the protest and started looting after the crowd got too big for the police and the military to control. A lot of uh, businesses were kind of looted. There was even a kind of targeting of Lebanese businesses because they the Lebanese minority... Uh, which uh, is a very interesting like subculture within Liberia, had done quite well during the Tolbert years. And so there was uh, a certain level of pent-up resentment carried out towards them, and it shook the Tolbert administration uh, to its core. So the first thing that Tolbert did was call for assistance from Guinea under the Mutual Defense Pact, and President Secutore promptly sent soldiers to Monrovia. Um 
and I'm reading again from Hahn here, summarizing uh, the whole incident. The deployment of foreign soldiers from Monrovia made it clear that Tolbert did not trust the AFL or the officers who received military training in the U.S. that maintained personal friendships with officers in the U.S. Army. Some people in the Tolbert administration also believed that some of the security officers that shot at the demonstrators had received orders from the CIA in order to delegitimize the Liberian government. Several journalists, members of PAL, and Moja described the deployment of foreign soldiers from Socialist Guinea as unpatriotic. Tolbert stated the Guinean troops would go back to Guinea shortly. He indicated the deployment should be seen as an exercise, noting that a contingent of the AFL was to be sent to Guinea in order to participate in military exercises with them as well. About six months after the Rice Riot, a confidential White House memo stated the riot in Monrovia, quote, severely jolted the political system in Liberia, quote, the depth of popular economic and political grievances and the government's underlying weakness at a time of accelerating change had severely damaged the government of Liberia, which would not make it likely for Tolbert to, quote, survive until the end of his term in 1983. Now, one other little thing happened during the Rice Riots, and that is back in the United States, in New York City, a small group of Liberian student activists led by a young man named Charles MacArthur Taylor, who at that time was unknown in Liberian politics, occupied the Liberian permanent mission and traveled to the UN in New York and insisted that Winston Tubman, the ambassador, should contact President Tolbert in Liberia and demand his resignation. The Liberians refused to leave the office and Ambassador Tubman called the police, who then arrested the group while the media covered the event. The arrest was broadcasted by several U.S. television stations, presenting the Tolbert administration as brutal and repressive. Tubman notes that this event was not viewed as significant, as it was just one of many anti-Tolbert events that occurred in the U.S. Many of these events appeared to be well-coordinated and funded. However, most significant was that they received extended media coverage in the U.S. and in Liberia. The media depicted the Liberian government as a brutal dictatorship. Therefore, it was assumed by many Liberian government officials that Liberian associations in the U.S. were being used by the CIA to create hostile public opinion against the Tolbert government. Now, we will circle back to this in the next installment of Demon Forces when we really start to talk about Charles Taylor, but this is where he first gets his exposure to the political scene in the context of these big rice riots. And it's interesting, much like the PAL and much like Moja, uh, these student groups in the United States, and I believe PAL was founded in the U.S. by Liberian students basically studying abroad, have a lot of evidence racked up against them by people who were there that they were being used by the CIA, whether they fully realized it or not. Now, Charles Taylor has never copped to any interaction with the intelligence services at this period in his career, but later on, that's kind of a different story. But I think it's safe to assume that there was some manipulation going on here, and it also tracks with the kind of pattern of using political activists using civil society groups and NGOs to find kind of wedge issues and ways to attack a president who is implementing policies that the U.S. does not like, but kind of concealing the reasons why 
basically people are protesting. So what you see in 1979 is a kind of ramp up in the U.S. media to kind of neg William Tolbert's government as suddenly uh, the U.S. has woken up and decided that, hey, we just noticed there's an Americo-Liberian elite that has historically denied opportunities to the indigenous Liberian population. And gee, you know, in the name of human rights, we really uh, ought to encourage Liberia to get its act together. It's kind of disgusting, uh, given the foundational role of the U.S. in setting up that system in the first place and maintaining it, and also the sick irony that Tolbert, probably more than any other America liberian president, was trying to reform things. Maybe not as fast as some people would have liked, but he was heading in a trajectory of more inclusion of the indigenous Liberian majority and less absolute dominance of the America liberian true Whig elite, which, of course, the old hardliners in the true Whig party definitely did not appreciate. So much like John Kennedy... This guy was racking up enemies across the board, and you can tell by 1979 the U.S. is act is engaged in what libs today would call active measures to undermine the government of Tolbert. And so I look through WikiLeaks for this period uh, to see, and there is, there are a lot of cables going back and forth about this kind of crisis situation with the rice riots and everything else. And one thing I did notice that is pretty sus, I don't know what exactly uh, the deal is with WikiLeaks, you know, cable gate uh, collection. They have quite a few cables uh, throughout the 1970s during the Tolbert administration. And then in late 1979, it just stops. And then there are there are no more cables coming out of Liberia in this collection for, I think, another 27 years. I think 2007 or 2008 is the next most uh, recent cable. I don't know why 1980 to 2006 is missing because that is probably the most interesting period in terms of uh, looking into U.S., uh, nefarious U.S. involvement in Liberia. But before the cable traffic goes completely dark, there are a couple interesting cables. One is called the Jerry Rawlings of Liberia, and this is from June 1979, two months after the Rice Riots. And it has, a, it has some very sinister undertones. Um, it says, recent events in Ghana prompted an evaluation of the, of the potential for an attempt by junior military officers to take over the reins of the Liberian government. Our conclusion, highly improbable, even though Jerry Rawlings types exist and are certainly sufficiently disgruntled at what they perceive as corrupt and inept military and civilian leadership in Liberia. The embassy has recently reported political tension in Liberia in some detail, particularly that catalyzed by the April 14th riots. And they go on to say, you know, while some similarities exist, we believe there are significant differences between the situation in Ghana prior to the successful coup staged by Flight Lieutenant Jerry Rawlings and the present Liberian situation. And they say, first, while Liberia faces some difficult economic problems, they are nowhere near as serious as Ghana or for the matter, Sierra Leone. 
Second, the army was already in control of Ghana, a country with a long history of military coups and coup plotting. Despite occasional plot trials, there has not been a substantiated attempt by military elements to take over in Liberia in many decades. Third, there is no known grouping of junior officers along tribal or social lines. Finally, President Tolbert has the type of inefficient military establishment he apparently wants, namely one that poses no threat to his administration. However, as he ruefully discovered on April 14th, this military force could not even cope with a determined civil disturbance. We do not see the Tolbert administration to be in any clear and present danger. Nevertheless, civilians and military alike do read the newspapers and listen to the radio, and some young officers, currently blunted in their desire for advancement, might visualize a parallel between Ghana and Liberia. There may be a number of potential Flight Lieutenant Jerry Rawlings now restive and becoming sufficiently disillusioned with the system to attempt to organize the much-abused lower ranks with the intent of clearing out the corrupt and inept military and civilian leadership. The specific officers noted below might be considered potential coup leaders. Each has expressed frustration with the with the present AFL leadership. The listing is in order of their assessed leadership capabilities. And then they go on to list one, two, three, four, five, six, six uh, officers in order of their leadership capabilities, uh, starting with Captain Joseph Douglas. And they note at the end, all above officers have been trained in the United States. So basic biographic data is already available. All except Colonel Twegby are in the embassy's latest PLBRL submission. In addition, we would note that Major Brapo and Captain Pearson were among the cadre trained by the recently assigned MTT. Embassy and DAO will report further on these and other potential dissidents as warranted. Signed, Gerlock. Okay, so this is an extremely sinister cable because even though it's framing this as just kind of like an intellectual exercise, it basically is submitting a list of potential military coup leaders that could be good candidates to be a, quote, Jerry Rawlings, who was obviously uh, the, the lieutenant who uh, led a military coup in Ghana and became the leader of that country for many years. And note that they mentioned that all of these officers were trained in the U.S. So why would they be so interested in cataloging, I wonder, the most promising U.S.-trained military officers who might be disgruntled enough to want to launch a military coup? Around the same time, uh, actually the day before that cable... There was another cable called Tolbert, the erosion of his political base. The summary here, I'll just read the summary. In a striking reversal of fortune, President William R. Tolbert's political base has suffered in the wake of the April riots to the point where many influential individuals questioned Tolbert's ability to survive until the expiry of his term in 1983. As outlined um, earlier, Tolbert's base has been constructed upon pragmatic alliances for mutual benefit. This mutuality of interest is now seriously questioned by many Tolbert supporters, and his enemies are in full cry against his indecisive leadership role mid-April. Potential for change, especially since June 4th Ghana coup, is discussed. End summary. It also does say... The Tolbert family is no longer monolithically behind him, even though he seems to be soliciting and relying more on their counsel than on his professional advisors. 
We have indications that his daughters, Willie Mae King and Christine Norman, have seriously urged him to take major action to improve the investment climate, change many of his key personnel, and take a more conciliatory view of dissent. Others in the family are also aware that unless Tolbert acts, and shortly, to improve the stability of his administration, all that the family has acquired in Liberia is in danger. However, these family influences may be pulling the man to act in his personal rather than the national interest. The Tolbert cabinet is in disarray. The government, which under the best of circumstances would have been in a state of suspended animation with the forthcoming OAU dominating the president's attention, is now virtually at a halt, as Tolbert has been unable to reach executive decisions. His now near total dependence on advisory committee recommendations for broad gauge policy decisions and new worries about the loyalty of his cabinet members have reduced his delegation of authority for even routine and day-to-day decision-making. Several key technocrat ministers are openly disaffected with the paralysis, yet remain loyal to date, apparently because, as one put it, they couldn't afford financially to be fired at this time. Among the more politically significant ministers, Mr. Burley Holder, the president's son-in-law, is both disillusioned and disaffected by his inability to effect changes in his Ministry of Defense. He also suffers from a major loss of confidence due to the poor showing of his ministry during the riots. Oliver Bright, a political power in his own right, has managed to maneuver the president into firing him from his minister of justice position, a good move for a bright future, but a major loss to Tolbert's good relations with a key segment of Monserrato politicos. The ailing minister of state and national true Whig party chairman, E. Reginald Townsend, who had been counted upon to take up the political slack, has kept a surprisingly low profile. In essence, we observe a cabinet and governmental apparatus that is demoralized and or disaffected to the point that they no longer play an active role in resurrecting the Tolbert fortunes. The president's trump card has heretofore been his promotion of indigenes and tribal elements to political significance. There is, however, a sense that a mandate of heaven principle is in effect, that as Tolbert appears to lose his ability to command respect, his tribal allies have stretched their ties of pragmatic loyalty away from him and are hedging their bets. Thus, the upcountry mood is one of uncertainty, which is leading to more vocal tribal discontent. The more prominent politicians of tribal origin are voicing calls for a better division of the pie, the same pie that they were content to eat progressively larger slices of before the April events. There are indications that Tolbert no longer enjoys the support of the Poro Society, a traditional tribal group of unknown but putatively considerable influence. To make the circuit of the counties, Grand Cape Mount is now largely ambivalent to Tolbert. The Shermans are longtime enemies. Prior actions of his have undercut his wife's family, the Davids, and now his new ally, Henry Fonbula, is mad over the arrest of his professor's son, Boima Fonbula, in the wake of the riots. Even Boima's release has not been timely enough to allow a rapid healing of the rift. I'm commander in chief of the army. Stand firm wherever you are. Defend your country wherever you are. And we, and we will work together, not only to defend this country, but we'll build a greater Liberia. When men of goodwill should be praising God for sending his blessed son to die for us and looking forward to a resurrection, evil men want to kill God's children, the people of God, the people of Liberia, destroy the prophet. You think God is not on the throne? He's on the throne. He will defend our cause. But you say, watch, fight, and pray. I'm a watcher, 
I'm a prayer maker and I'm a preacher. No man takes the Lord in his hand. Well, I not talk about race issue. What no race issue? They are playing the thing. And I know it. They are playing it. But if I had attacked them before, then they would have wanted a chance to say, we attacked them. Then I wouldn't have been able to get the support of my people as I'm getting now. They, I, I, I had ideas about it. If I take the position, then they would have been saying that you have not given them their fundamental rights. Their constitutional rights. But you see how it is when you give people things that you, you, you feel that you shouldn't give them. When they don't, they don't appreciate it afterwards, you don't give them to the kids. Isn't that so? Yeah. But they don't appreciate it. Let them go to the court. Stand their chance. Let the court say that they're right. The law is there should be no demonstration except approved by government. Reason for that is obvious. And what did they do? They said they were going to have to demonstrate at any cost. Is that the way people defy the authority of government? Is that the way they defy the authority of government? And what you expect me to be as your president? To say I won't defend government? Then you won't be, I won't be fitting to be your president. I sure would be fitting to be your president. Because the people, you can fool some of the people sometimes. But you can't fool all of the people all the time. They infiltrated here, there, and yonder to try to, to confuse people. And they are wicked people to confuse the people, the less informed people, to confuse them, to get one up against the other. All those intrigues, those are the devilish intrigues. Station LBC broadcasting to you from Monroeville, Liberia. You have been listening to a response to a statement issued this morning from the counties expressing solidarity and support to the government and people of Liberia. So things are really not going well for Tolbert. And there's one more cable that I discovered that is sort of interesting. And that's from... It's actually from April 23rd, 1979, a little over a week after the Rice Riots. And that was, this describes uh, a meeting that President Tolbert had with the Charge d'Affaires and also the political counselor and uh, chief military attache at the U.S. Embassy, a man named Colonel Robert Gosney. And Tolbert basically wanted to know Colonel Gosney's personal assessment of the armed forces of Liberia. During this meeting, Robert Gosney informed President Tolbert that the Americans had recently received documents which on their face indicated that a senior officer of the Liberian army had accepted a bribe from a U.S. company. He thought that the president should be aware of this situation as it was against the law of the United States for a company to offer a bribe to a foreign official. Therefore, the information on the situation had been sent to Washington and a request had been made for an investigation. The foreign minister asked to see the documentation and studied the bill of lading indicating that the Bendome Company had sent a car consigned to Lieutenant General Johnson, the chief of staff. The president looked visibly taken aback with this revelation. 
although we know from Colonel Gosney that the president's son-in-law, the Minister of Defense, had previously apprised him of the situation. The foreign minister said that something would have to be done about the situation now that the U.S. government had, quote, officially informed the government of Liberia about this possible bribe. At this point, Colonel Gosney began his presentation. He observed that the Liberian soldier was as good a soldier as any he had seen. He was willing to learn. However, the basic problem was an absolute void at the top in leadership. The Minister of Defense is a very capable man, but he does not have control over the Chief of Staff. The Chief of Staff has not done his job, and he only does what he wants, even if directed by the Minister. The Army cannot be responsive as it is presently structured. The 2nd Battalion was the only unit to respond well to the situation over Easter weekend because it was committed as a unit with a plan. The 1st Battalion was brought into Monrovia on Friday night and dropped off in groups of two to four men with no plan, no command structure, and no guidance. Under the circumstances, they came out amazingly well. To have an army that will support the president, some changes will be required. Most important is to replace the chief of staff, Lieutenant General Johnson, and several of the staff officers in AFL and brigade headquarters. Very few officers in the senior positions are competent and have the interest of the army and the governor of Liberia at heart. What is needed is a dynamic leader, and not the present situation in which senior officers do nothing but oppose those changes, which could lead to improvement. The president asked for Colonel Gosney's recommendations as to who could give the type of leadership the GOL requires. Colonel Gosney replied his personal opinion was that Deputy Minister of State Security Wilfred Clark would make an excellent chief of staff, and Colonel Frank Smith would be a good brigade commander. The president said that he could not name Clark as chief of staff for two reasons. One, he needed him where he was, as there was no one to replace him. And two, he wanted a professional military man who would be more acceptable to the other professional army officers. Colonel Gosney also suggested that Colonel Cardor, the present G2 intelligence, could be named G3 operations. If the army can be reorganized according to a plan that is adhered to, then the major problems could be overcome. Gosney also uh, recommended that... The 6,000-person uh, force could be cut to a force of 3,500 professionals and do a much better job if certain reforms were carried out. And so he makes a few other recommendations. And at the very end, they write, The president appeared to be relieved to learn the Liberian soldier is willing to learn and basically with proper leadership is able to do the job. While he has heard from others, notably the defense minister and Colonel Hunter, the former, the former chief of USMM, that the top leadership in the army is either corrupt or inefficient. Perhaps the events of Easter weekend will finally force him to take some corrective measures. Unfortunately, up until the fateful weekend, Lieutenant General Johnson had managed to maintain the fiction that he was the only person who could be counted on to furnish the president with his absolute loyal backing. This was reflected in a statement which the foreign minister made at the time of arrival of the Guinean troops on April 16th, when he stated, quote, Johnson is the only man we trust. One measure which will soon take place is to relieve his son-in-law, Burley Holder, of the defense ministry portfolio. Holder told Colonel Gosney, following the above conversation, that he will be moving, but he doesn't know where he will go or who his successor will be. Signed, Walker. Confidential. So that is interesting. The character of Lieutenant General Johnson, I don't know exactly what ended up happening to him, but it's interesting that he is the most trusted military leader in the army 
by Tolbert and his ministers. And Colonel Gosney comes in and kind of tells and tells him officially that he accepted a bribe from the Bendome Company. And I'm not sure what the Bendome Company is, but I think it's possible that Colonel Gosney might have been doing a little bit of mind war on President Tolbert by giving him this evidence that Lieutenant General Johnson was, in fact, corrupt and disloyal. So then, during all this anxiety about bolstering defense, um, the governor of Liberia was scheduled to hold the 16th OAU summit in Monrovia in July 1979. And for this summit, uh, Tolbert wanted it to be of extraordinary quality and invested heavily in new infrastructures, bridges, roads, conference halls, and five-star hotels that could attract other international conferences and help expand the tourist sector. At this conference, Tolbert rigorously continued to promote a NIEO, which then led to the signing of the Lagos Plan of Action in 1980. After the OAU meeting, Tolbert frequently broadcasted warnings against, quote, global economic exploitation if Africa did not unite, and called for sanctions against South Africa in order to promote majority rule in that country. In the second week of April 1980, the Liberian Baptist Education and Missionary celebrated its 100th convention in Monrovia, which involved a large number of foreign guests. At the same time, Tolbert, as the chairperson of the OAU, was planning for the celebration of Zimbabwe's independence on April 18th, which he considered a significant occasion because the Liberian government supported the independence struggle. On the 12th of April, Tolbert and his wife had decided to spend the night in the presidential apartment at the executive mansion. About midnight, as they were preparing for bed, a group of men entered the executive mansion and forced their way to the presidential apartment. Tolbert's wife, Victoria, who was the closest witness, states that six, quote, horrifying masked men entered the presidential apartment. Their bodies were, quote, painted for war in tribal fashion, wearing only jagged and weathered scraps of fabric hung securely about their loins. They shot several security guards on their way to the apartment, and as soon as they entered the apartment, one of the men shot President Tolbert. Subsequently, two children who were crying were also shot, and one of the men rejoiced and yelled, Victory! We got our $25,000! And just like that, dear listener, William Tolbert was dead. So continuing from Han, Before the coup, three main rumors circulated in Liberia that high-ranking army officers planned a coup while Tolbert was in Zimbabwe, that Tolbert would not return from Zimbabwe but go into self-imposed exile in Lesotho, or the president's cabinet planned to stage a coup. After the coup, four main theories about who killed Tolbert began to develop in different variants. One, Tolbert was killed by a foreign guest from the Baptist church who stayed in the guest wing of the executive mansion. Two, he was killed by a white man from the CIA. Three, an unknown soldier, later named Jebo, for whom a monument was later raised, killed Tolbert, or four, it was one of the 17 non-commissioned soldiers, led by 32-year-old Master Sergeant Samuel Canyon Doe, who entered the executive mansion that evening. These speculations created confusion surrounding the murder. However, 
the 17 non-commissioned officers subsequently formed the People's Redemption Council, PRC, and assumed power over the government under the leadership of Samuel Doe. According to Doe in 1985, the conspiracy to remove Tolbert was planned by several people who had formed the council without his knowledge. These people informed him that Gabriel Bacchus Matthews and other imprisoned people would be executed on April 14th, the anniversary of the Rice Riot, and persuaded him to plan and lead the coup. Doe further states that he perceived the Tolbert administration as, quote, rotten through and through, and referred to nepotism, corruption, and poor working conditions for the AFL. Doe states that it was because of his political position that he decided to plan the coup, which, according to him, took less than five hours to plan. It is unclear, however, what Doe's political position was, other than being in opposition to the Tolbert government. Albert Toe, one of the 17 soldiers that carried out the coup, recalls that after killing Tolbert, they released a number of political opponents from prison, most notably Gabriel Bacchus Matthews, Oscar Cuya, George Boley, and Chea Chipu. They had been arrested shortly before the coup in order to prevent them from arranging a midnight march to defend the executive mansion. After their release, they contacted the U.S. Embassy, and shortly after, U.S. representatives arrived at the executive mansion and informed Doe that the U.S. endorsed the coup and would provide the PRC with all necessary support. That same morning, Samuel Doe announced on national radio that a military coup had taken place and that the PRC, a military junta, now controlled Liberia under his leadership. The name PRC sought to reflect that the coup was to liberate the indigenous people from enslavement by the Americo-Liberians. In the same broadcast, it was announced that the 1847 constitution was abolished and that the functions of the executive and legislative branches would be controlled by the PRC. The building of the True Whig Party was destroyed and the party dissolved. The Masonic Temple was looted and the Masonic Order was banned, but only for a few years. The coup and the establishment of the PRC marked the end of the First Liberian Republic, which had persisted for 132 years. And I'll just also say that there was a very interesting 60 Minutes profile on William Tolbert from early 1980, within three months of him being killed, that basically presents his administration as full of nepotism, painting him as kind of an egotist. The top families known as honorables number about 40,000 out of Liberia's 1.7 million people. They have names like Carter and Phillips and Dennis. This is a wedding party that the Coopers are giving for the Campbells. There are impossibly complicated cross connections through intermarriage in these family trees. It ensures that power and money remains in the same hands generation after generation. And the American connection is continually being reinforced. Most young Americo-Liberians are educated in the United States, and they often bring back American brides. That's what one of the Bernard brothers did. They've both just returned from college at North Carolina and Western Michigan to take up the family fortune amassed by their late father, the former director of police. So there's the transportation company, the car rental, the bus service, the yes. heavy trucking of gas. Right. There's this extraordinary beachfront property that's going to become a holiday hotel. Exactly. Apartments, farms, other uh, uh, real estate here and there. This is not, I got to tell you, an image of African Africans that most Americans have. 
we do have a mixture of the uh, indigenous African and then what some would call the uh, civilized African. We are sort of a blend of, you know, both. One of the reasons for the blend is that marital fidelity in Liberia is almost unheard of. President Tolbert himself has only one wife, but he has children by many women and is said to be as virile at 65 as he was in his 20s. He's a Baptist minister and former head of the World Baptist Alliance, but he feels no moral or ethical conflict. You know, one of the fascinating things about life in this country, particularly for an outsider, are these, these the family relationships, I mean, how it works, so that a man may have a wife and a couple of mistresses and have children that are born out of wedlock that are nevertheless brought into the family. In, in your own youth, I gather, sir, that you father children outside mm -hmm. your immediate family. Mm -hmm. How does it work? It works well. <clears throat> Liberian life, it's peculiar life. In fact, we are close-knit people. If you touch one, you touch more or less all. Those who are not related by blood, somehow or another, they are close. We have what we call the extended family life. The Bernard boys had the same father, but different mothers. One, the father's wife, the other, their father's friend. It isn't a question of many wives. No, no, no. no. It's no. the children. wife. Yeah. We don't, it's not a matter of polygamy. It's, it's, there's only one wife. My father's only had one wife at a time, and it's, it's not a matter of just... He had one wife, but how many children did he have by women other than that one wife? Oh, about 13. Really? Yeah. Liberia has great wealth and has a reputation for being easy pickings for the international conglomerates, providing they deal with the right families. Firestone Tire owns most of the rubber, along with eminent Liberians. The field hands earn $7.50 a week. And there's iron. A foreign consortium extracts the ore, and the government extracts half their profits. And for special people, special shares were created. So a few benefit grandly from this joint venture. And Liberia has the world's largest shipping fleet registered under its flag, a flag of convenience. The convenience being tax breaks and casual scrutiny of crews and ships. And there's talk of oil, and there's uranium, and gold, and diamonds, and vast resources of timberlands that are just beginning to be exploited. But the fact is, most of the wealth that all of those natural blessings Liberia has stays up there among the 40,000 people at the top of the heap. And no one is more top than William Tolbert, this great-great-grandchild of slavery who can trace his roots back to South Carolina, has farms and rubber plantations, and family connections with businesses all over the country. He is president of a republic, but he lives like a feudal prince, or more correctly, an enlightened African chief. the West African coast, it is called Dash, the small gift to a servant who has performed well. Crisp new U.S. currency to his workers and their families, and while the cameras are there, to just about anyone who asks. 
President Tolbert deplores the very idea that anyone might believe that Liberia is controlled by family compacts. We'll take a look at the country's biggest private business. The Meserato Corporation is involved in many things. Its biggest enterprise is fishing, catching and freezing shrimp and lobster for the export market. It also has a monopoly on commercial fishing for the domestic market. Vice President in charge of Meserato Fishing, Richard Tolbert, Harvard, Columbia Law School, and the President's nephew. If you need to get any more people on a temporary basis, do. Over at Meserato's headquarters, you'll find more Tolberts. Stephanette, Vice President in charge of everything. Sieta Tolbert, working her way up through the finance department. And Lori Tolbert, in charge of retail sales. It's rare to find a, a, a firm anywhere that's such a family firm as this one. If there's any uh, crisis, the family automatically binds together. So that if you're in any, if there are any kind of problems, it's just a matter of picking up the phone and saying, I need you, and everybody comes. And that's the way we've been brought up. Business is business, politics is politics, and family is family. Liberians at an official level deny that the country is ruled by nepotism. But at the same time, they point to a number of things. That in white America, it is not unknown for certain powerful families to be in politics and business at the same time. Or for the same old names to keep getting all the good jobs. Or for networks of relatives and friends to look after their own. Or for men in public life to be unfaithful to their wives. It's just that in the United States, hypocritically, we try to cover it up. That, rather refreshingly, is not one of the American qualities those African pilgrim fathers brought with them when they came to the dark continent. There's a very strange interview with his son, A.B. Tolbert, who was really seen as kind of the next generation political star. But... Uh, in the interview, professes his belief in something called the Great White Brotherhood, which I know is somehow connected to theosophy, and also stated his uh, intention, perhaps, to one day be the leader of all of Africa. President Tolbert says he'll not run again when his term is up in five years. We don't have $750,000 to give you either. Among the most likely candidates are Shad Tubman, son of the former president, and son-in-law of Mr. Tolbert. But the man most people in Monrovia say is the hottest candidate is this man, A. Benedict Tolbert, trained at Oberlin University, a gentleman farmer, a dynamo of a politician, and the son of the president. Uh, I am the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the House of Representatives. I'm also the co-chairman on the Committee on Education. I'm also a member of the Committee on Information and Cultural Affairs. Out of government, I am uh, president of the Liberian Federation of Trade Unions, uh, also a minister of the gospel, an evangelist, a spiritualist. That's a pretty full, full day you've described. That's right. <laughs> Personally, I am a child of the universe, and I belong to the school of a Senate master's teaching called the Great White Brotherhood. There are several hierarchies in the universal uh, cosmological world. And so you have a master in charge of wealth, who is called the master Fortuna. You have a master in charge of governments and nations of the world called El Moya. 
You have a master in charge of freedom of the universe called Saint Germain. You have a master for justice called Portia. You have a, a master for wisdom called the goddess of Mercury. But this does not bring about blasphemy, nor does it make them out several gods. It doesn't bring about a pantheon of gods. And if it were not so, I would not have told you. Tell me, in purely practical terms, and one hears uh, this rumored about in the political circles here, uh, that you're a pretty good candidate to be the next president of Liberia. I believe I am because of the way I live. You see, God doesn't make many leaders. He makes few leaders. If he made men and leaders, then he wouldn't have followers. No, but, in, <laughs> but, but in, a, in a purely personal way, does this, does this cause some family quarrels not or at all, tensions? Not at all. I am not ambitious to become president. I only regard myself as a presidential timber because I know I'm capable of governing not only Liberia but the whole of Africa. And if, I, if, if the great divine master of human events decides through the minds of the people to use me as a presidential candidate, not only will I rule Liberia, but will I, I shall endeavor to rule the whole of Africa by uniting the continent. <laughs> Into one? I, this is my goal, my, my, my objective, and my aim in my lifetime to see Africa united. With A.B. Tolbert as president? Maybe. <laughs> a chip from the block. <laughs> and I gather you were a chip off your old man's block. As well. <laughs> but this whole segment, which, again, does one of these little almost unforced error uh, insults to Liberia by, in the opening, saying that it is on the east coast of Africa. You know, talk about fact check. Then it goes on to basically kind of neg the whole Tolbert program for development and kind of points out that, well, look at his family. They own, they, they're the CEOs of all these different companies and blah, blah, blah. And they even spend a good chunk of the segment, just like that State Department cable that was written a week before Stephen Tolbert died. They seem very fixated on the fact that Tolbert is, I guess, a ladies' man who has children from many different women and uh, how this is kind of an accepted practice among the Americo-Liberian elite. Like, once again, they're just discovering things for the first time and feeling oh-so-shocked at this uh, kind of retrograde practice. And within a few months of this 60 Minutes report coming out, Tolbert would be shot dead in the executive mansion. And according to several sources, his heart and liver and other organs were then removed from his body and ritualistically eaten by the soldiers. So a little over a year after sentencing some of the most prominent Americo-Liberians to hang for ritually murdering and cannibalizing somebody for power, Tolbert himself is killed and ritually eaten by his rivals. But behind those rivals, who very loudly proclaim themselves to be representatives of the downtrodden indigenous population, rumors abound in Liberia that they are actually being controlled by a mysterious white hand.
a mosquito and his solo. It has the sting of death. Always sing before he sting. Beware, take my advice. Mosquito is no friend to man. When you're living in a tropical country or visiting, it's all the same. Use DDT and destroy this wicked demon blood-sipping, sapping creature. Prevent this tiny creature from sapping all of your blood. Watch, pray, prevent, and save your little toe.
Watch your little 